If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Oh, the weather outside is frightful. The CU podcast is still delightful. And since there's no place left to go, let Pat speak. Let Pat speak. What? Welcome to this holiday edition of the CU podcast for Tuesday, December 20th, 2016. I'm going to be your host, Pat Country, the almighty Pat Country. Holding it down on his own for the fourth straight podcast. How do I do it? I don't know. <laughs> anyway, we got lots of fun for you coming up. We're talking about Super Mario Run iOS app released. The Rogue One uh, Star Wars film is out. Uh, that my review will be responding to PewDiePie again. Responding and following up to the second in Charles uh, podcast topic from last time. And some other cool stuff, including the NES Classic Edition first month sales revealed. Uh, first, what's been going on? Uh, well, the holiday shopping is over. Thank God. Um, I always think it's perplexing how people still are not on, not using this online service that we have. You know that whole HTTP colon slash slash America Online Portal uh, CompuServe thing that's been around for a while? I actually tried to go to the movies, try to go to see Rogue One. I couldn't even turn into the parking lot. I couldn't turn into the parking lot to see a movie that was at the mall. Um, because people are still shopping a week before Christmas in 2016 because they're fools and don't realize they can just go online at their fingertips or on their smartphone and tap four buttons and buy that scarf that they, they want their niece to have or that, that, that toy that their nephew wants, or I don't know, uh, the second mortgage that the husband wants. I don't know, can you get a second mortgage on your phone? I think you can actually through Quicken Rocket Loans or something. That aside, um, just I did all my my shopping, but now gift wrap is left. And gift wrap is really just you saying to the other person, uh, I'm too lazy to keep this present hidden until you see it. So it's really like if you don't have a hiding spot and you just want your stuff to be out for a few weeks. Yeah, you gift wrap, you put it it's like a it's like camouflage for your gifts. But your gifts are out in the open. Uh so you don't have to worry about it. That's the way I look at it. At least. Isn't that what gift wrap is or it's just something invented by uh paper companies to make a billion dollars each year on something that is Is there anything more useless than gift wrap? Is there anything with a shorter shelf life than gift wrap or literally you use it for like uh you know 2 days? Or a day, its its usefulness is gone as soon as you like you know you 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 digest things. It takes longer to digest some foods than it does to get rid of gift wrap and throw it out. So I'm just happy that part's done. I bought Frank a bottle of Jameson. Don't tell him I said that. I also contributed uh, to the Italian pastry fund like I do each year for our traditional Italian Christmas Eve uh, dinner that he's uh, nice enough to invite me to. Uh, so that said, what else is going on? The second print run of the book is finished. That is cool. Um, you can pre-order at ultimatenes.com. The app is out. 
The Ultimate NES Guide app is currently out on iOS. I'll make this easier for you if you don't want to use that whole search feature on your app store. It is iOS.ultimatenes.com. The Android version should be out later this week. Uh, and if it's not, you can bother Jerry from Braceware about that. And that is droid.ultimatenes.com. And thank you so much to everyone who's downloaded so far. It's a $4.99 app. But after that, you don't have to pay for any. There's no, like, you know, you only can look at three games a day. No, look at as many games as you want. You know, read the read the information about it. You got some reviews on there. You got tips and codes for 70 games so far. Soon to be 100 and more, and we'll keep increasing them uh, as it goes on. We actually have this sort of spec'd out, out to, like, version 1.3 at this point. Um, so we, we, we know where we want to go. It's just incrementally building it up, including putting in all the button functions for all the games in the long run and all the tips and codes for the available games and uh, bridging bridging to the uh, PAL variant carts, having them in there, more system variants in there, the Hong Kong and Asian NES cart variants in there, and other stuff I'm forgetting off the top of my head because it's late and I'm tired already. Not a good sign at the beginning of a podcast, huh? But what are you going to do? I'm here by myself. Um, so... Uh, that's what's going on. I'm also going to be at the uh, the uh, SoCal Retro Gaming Expo February 4th and 5th. That's in Ontario, California. Go, uh, go to SoCalRetroGamingExpo.com for more information and tickets. Uh, there's going to be guests there like Gerard Khalil, the completionist, and his friend Alex. Uh, you're going to have uh, Ian, me, and Frank, Norm the Gaming Historian, Andre Meadows, uh, Pro Jared, uh, Billy and Jay, the Game Chasers, Phil Moore from Nick Arcade. You're going to have a huge console area, m- dozens of arcade machines, all free to play, uh, panels, tournaments, cosplay. Uh, if you want to uh, pre order tickets, you'll save. Go to uh, SoCalRetroGamingExpo.com. There's a link there. You can use promo code NESPUNK and you save, I believe it's about 10%. On tickets, there's also uh, sponsorships available, things of that nature. Uh, it's going to be fun. It was a great time in August, and it's going to be even bigger, a bigger arcade this time, more consoles, the cosplay, uh, more guests, and more to be announced. Let's talk about the Super Mario Run app. I'm going to play it while I talk to you about it. This is an endless runner. Um, this is not the first app from Nintendo. They had the Mitomo app that came out, what was that, in March? Uh, and I played that for, like, I don't know. Uh, five days before I was being, you know, I was tired of being asked, what's your favorite appetizer? You know, I like hummus, nachos. Yeah, I was just tired of that. So so Nintendo did that, and they came out with their uh, uh, Pokemon Go app. It wasn't theirs. It was DNA uh, that did it. And Nintendo has, was it, was it 30% stake in the Pokemon company? So they didn't really work on the game, but they get a, they get a chunk of the revenue, 30% or whatever it is. So good on them for that, but this is the first game they came out with that really shows. Okay, we're here to we're here to let's go, let's do this. So it's Run Mario. It's, it's an endless runner. What that means is that you continually run until you stop and hit something. You don't have control over that. You only have control over jumping. So you can play you can play the game with with one finger. Uh, I was gonna say one hand, but that didn't want to be a euphemism or something else. So you have enemies in the game. Just like traditional Goomba, Bullet Bill, stuff like that. You have you know, blocks. You can get mushrooms to power up. Because you can die in the game. If you die, what happens is um, you go, go in a bubble. And then um, you can decide when you where you come back. There's switch blocks. There's Like I said, there's coins. There's also purple coins. And the real goal is to get five 
purple coins, you unlock something. I forget what off the top of my head. Uh, the one thing that's, that's interesting about the game is that you can run into enemies and you and you sort of just vault over them, but you can you can hop on them or do a trick where you vault uh, over them and then hop on them for more coins and points. So there are six worlds. It is not a free game overall. It's free to start. It's like shareware, so which is interesting because some people were complaining about that it wasn't free. The first three levels are, are free, and then the fourth one you can try out for 30 seconds or 20 seconds, and then you can decide to buy it. So there's a flagpole at the end of levels. Uh, every fourth level, there's, it's either uh, you know like the pirate ship and the air airship or the castle. There's mini-boss uh, battles with, uh, I think, the Koopalings and things like that, and Bowser and, and, and the guy, the little dinosaur waving his arms in Super Mario 3 in the castle. So it's nine ninety nine. I'm not an expert on app game prices. I think that's an okay price because there's no in-game purchases. It's not like that. Remember that stupid uh, Need for Speed uh, game we spoke about in the podcast a couple years ago, where you had to pay. You could pay for gasoline to recharge your car. Imagine if you if you downloaded this app and it was free to play, but you could only play two levels a day unless you paid for more, or you can only jump a hundred times. You had to buy more jumps, or wait for your jump meter to refill. That would be awful. So I'm guessing, yes, if this was a 499 app, like a certain NES guide app that's out right now on iOS coming through the Android, it was, if it was 499, I'm guessing it would be a lot better for people, but I don't think 999 a one-time purchase is a killer myself. I just don't. Um, so yeah, you go along, you tap the jump. What's interesting is that you can uh, sort of wall jump. You can go backwards through one jump once, so that can be useful at certain areas, and you hold the button to jump higher. It's te- it's technically a sound game. It's polished as all fuck. If I can use a you know, use some harsh language, it looks like you would expect a, a nice polished Nintendo uh, game app to look, mobile game to look. Um, in terms of graphic style, it's whatever you expect on the Wii U or Wii in terms of Super Mario, you know, 3D World stuff like that, uh, you know, or Super Mario Wii, whatever those games are that I should should really play at some point. Uh, in terms of replayability, that's where I think it could get interesting in terms of replayability. Because there's more than one mode. There's a, there's, there's a building mode. Which, let me get out of this right now. I'll complete, complete the race. There's a building mode here where you can build your own sort of mushroom kingdom uh, using buildings. You can, you can get the coins they use that. You can buy different hills, fences, flowers to decorate it. You can buy toadstool houses. And I'll get into why that's important later. So there's lots of stuff to unlock here. There is some replayability. Total replayability? Well, let's, I don't know about that. Let's not go nuts. But there's there's enough going on here uh, to start. Now, will Nintendo add more uh, more levels or features? They said no on the outset. But from what I see so far, there's a decent amount of unlockables. And the good news, again, is that you don't have to pay for it. It's all through like getting those purple coins. And it's through stuff like uh, getting uh, toadstools, which happens on the, the rally mode. So what is the rally mode? She's like, can't get past this level. The rally mode is a one-on-one mode, which actually interests me as much, if not more, than the main app. So the rally mode has a selection, and I'll go to that right now, where you can select, I believe they're computer players that you can challenge. And if you add friends, and you can link, by the way, you can link your My Nintendo account and use your, your, your Me from the Wii U and Wii. But when you go to rally, which I'll go to right now, da-da-da-da-da, Let's, let's go back. Let's click on Rally. So Rally. I'm going to do it one right quick. So there's four different, there's five different enemies. Again, I don't think these are real people because 
that have to wait for me. I think these are all just created. So I they have different numbers for their rank. My rank is 99. Not that good. I can take on Pitch, for example. It has a rating of 156. Uh, and then there's different colored... There's Let's see. There's six different color of Toadstool that you can basically bet against them to see if you win. Then you can win them and you can you can use them to gain credits for, to unlock stuff like Toadstool Houses to that color. So I'm going to play Pitch right here. I'm going to go one-on-one with Pitch. I should have probably recorded this, but whatever. I'm lazy and, you know, it's a podcast. You know, not a video blog. So what's cool is that it's a one-on-one race for coins. It's also a race to do cool tricks. And you can die in this mode as well. It's timed, I think it's about a minute. Uh, and you can get stuff like Coin Rush. When that happens, you get a bunch of coins that appear more than usual. And then you can go, and you know, you can really get a lot more coins. You can pull off tricks. And when you pull off tricks, I'm going to lose this one because I can't fucking concentrate because I'm talking while I'm playing an app game. I didn't realize it would be this complicated. Uh, you can pull off tricks like multiple hit combos, things of that nature, multiple jump combos. That gets your star rating going. And that creates a rush as well. It's a fun mode, and then at the end of the race, it'll count up your coins, as well as... Um, and I died again. Wow, this is the worst t- worst I've ever done at this game. I really cannot concentrate right now uh, while trying to do a podcast. I guess it uses the same uh, part of the brain. <laughs> oh, I got a star. And a coin rush. Alright. So, what's interesting, though, is that at the end of the race, you also accrue not just coins but the toadstools that are cheering on your good performance, and the winner of that combination wins the, the the round and gets all the coins and all the toadstools, and I'm going to lose fucking big time here. I got destroyed because I died like 14 times. Yeah, I know. I fucking died. Yeah. I, 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 so then at that point, I lose my toadstools. I think this will be the most replayable part of the game when you have your friends to play against. So uh, I'll get back to you after I finish this race. I still got crushed. Oh, God. All right. So, yeah, I think this is a smart move just because Nintendo was never going to put their old ROMs on here on, 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 a, on a mobile device because there's no value in doing that. It devalues the IP and their AAA titles to do that. But also, you know, it's terrible to play a game with a uh, control pad on a phone. So they really did what they could do. They they leveraged their IP, their, their good IP, with a smart uh, mobile type of game and I think there's enough replayability that this is going to be okay. I think they're going to make a, a decent amount of coin with this. So I will recommend this. I, I think the one bad part, though, is the DRM. The fact that you have to be tethered to the internet. They're doing that, obviously, to help fight piracy. I understand that. But if I'm on a plane from somewhere uh, and I want to play this and I have the internet access, that's a problem. And also, how much data is this using if I'm not near Wi-Fi? That's a scary thing to think about as well. So... Check it out, $9.99. If this was like $7.99 or $6.99, I think it would be a bigger no-brainer. But $9.99 is not bad for what's probably going to be one of the most polished uh, mobile games that you're going to find. So I want to respond. I want to respond. I don't want this to become of let's just bash random YouTubers or people that Pat wants to go after. That's not what this is about. Just because we brought it up last time and he responded, so I figured I'll respond to it. I'm part of the media that he pointed out. Uh, PewDiePie did the response to his 50 million, uh, deletion threatening video where he was going to delete his channel at 50 million, um, because 
he didn't like the direction YouTube was going with the algorithm changes, and he doesn't like the fact that his videos weren't um, seen as much as they were in the past. This is his words, not mine. This is all in his video. So, of course, the media... Uh, which he got on his response, which I get to. The media ran with the story because it's a big, it's a big story. The biggest YouTuber out there, uh, Felix Sh- Shelberg, uh, wants to get rid of YouTube and quit his channel, or so we thought. So, what's interesting about this is is that I I sort of saw the alternative when I spoke about this last time, or the likelihood of what was actually going to happen in my video without stating as such. Because in my video, when I first spoke about him threatening to delete his channel, I spoke about his alternate channel, which was his Jack Septicai uh, sort of parody channel. I don't know much about it, but it had one and a half million subscribers. So I mentioned that in passing just because I said that if he quit YouTube, it wouldn't make that much of a difference because if he started a new channel, he can get 5 to 10 million subscribers within like six months. And that was sort of a test because I think he got that million or million and a half subscribers like pretty damn quickly. So that's why I brought it up. But I guess I gave uh, Felix too much credit in not going with the safe hacky route and actually deleting his joke channel versus his main one. I don't know why I thought that. I don't know why I gave him that much respect thinking that he'd actually have some integrity and follow through with it. Not sure why. Obviously, it was a big PR stunt, but I was thinking it was actually he was actually going to go through with the PR stunt and be uh, be ge- genuine with it. So what he did was once he reached 50 million subscribers, he deleted his parody account. He took the hacky Safeway uh, out, which I I guess I didn't figure he would try to do that. But then looking back, you know, when you're making ISIS Twitter jokes, I'm not sure you have that much going on to begin with in terms of uh, you know creative juice at that point. So he trolled everyone. He trolled me. He trolled the quote-unquote media. He, he trolled YouTube in his eyes. It was a PR stunt, which we all knew that uh, because it worked, because he got about 3 million new subscribers in, like, I don't know, like a week or so. Um, and now he's saying, oh, I'm going to delete my channel at, at 100 million. The problem now, though, Felix, is that you're, you've cried wolf. So any other sort of, I guess, hacky joke PR stunt you're going to pull in the future, not only... Am I not going to talk about it anymore or you or take you even semi-seriously or any issues that you might be trying to uh, uh, elevate via your hokey bullshit videos is that the media hopefully uh, will back off and say, oh, this guy just wants attention because that's what it came down to. Of course, you can hide behind the fact that you said, well, I'm spotlighting this issue and this is the only way it can get attention. But you know what? Who does that really help in the end? Who does it help when you make a hokey uh, fucking joke uh, deletion threatening video uh, because you're not happy with Google? Who does that really help more? Does that help all the little YouTubers you're uh, looking out for? Or does it really help yourself gain a few million YouTube subscribers in a week and put yourself out there on a pedestal to get more attention? Because maybe you were afraid you're dropping out of the public eye a little bit too much for your liking. It has been a while since that South Park episode, and since you were on any late-night talk show after all, hmm? So, that's what's so, so strange to me about it. He said the video needed to be funny to get attention. Well, it wasn't funny. No one was really joking in the comments that I saw. I didn't think it was funny, but then again, maybe I don't get that Swedish sense of humor. I don't know. He said it was half satire, half comedy. Well, maybe Felix needs to uh, learn what satire is because I'm not sure what he was satirizing. Was he satirizing uh, people complaining that YouTube was dead or YouTube was changing because he himself has done multiple videos 
on that very topic, complaining about drama videos on YouTube, uh, reaction videos, and the like. So I'm not sure if that's a valid argument anyway. And saying that it was half comedy, again, I really didn't laugh. Now, the golden rule of comedy is that you better be, be funny if you're trying to make a, a bigger point. If you're a comedian, if you're South Park or whatever else, you better make damn sure your, your jokes hit home. Now, again, to me, his jokes didn't hit home. But then again, I'm not his target audience trying to grow up out of their prepubescent stage and then graduate high school at the current moment. So maybe I'm not used to it. Maybe I'm not. He did say that uh, being a YouTuber comes with a price. Yeah, there's a price to being a YouTuber. There's a price to being anything. There's a price to being a first responder. There's a price to me speaking about uh, this garbage right now on the podcast is that I'm tired and hungry. And I need a burrito. So that's just a an empty, vapid point. Because at the end of the day, it's not like you're pressed into being a YouTuber. Uh, you make the choice. And then, again, you have the power to decide how much you want to take this whole YouTube thing. Do you want it to be a part-time job? Do you want to do it once a week? Or do you want to work hard? Now, PewDiePie Felix, I guarantee you that you worked hard to be number one. I'm not disputing that fact. But that was on you. No one forced you to do that. There's not a ball and chain around your foot forcing you to be uh, tethered to your computer while you scream and yell and play Goat Simulator. That's on you, buddy. Not anyone else. So the uh, comes with the price is funny because in this instance, I know exactly what the price is for you. The price for you was, according to Forbes, I don't know, around $12 million last year is what the price it was for you to be a YouTuber. That's what the price was. That's not a bad price, is it? If you disappear tomorrow and never did another shrieking or attention-seeking uh, video again, you could retire happy. If no one ever saw you again, you have enough money to live four generations. You're fine, buddy. You're fine. You've made your tens of millions off of YouTube. Your price is fine. Uh, I think anyone out there, anyone working, uh, you know, first responders out there, anyone working even a just a regular old tough nine to five, the nine to five I used to work, working 55 hours a week, getting paid a decent amount, but not $12 million decent. Um, I knew the price for that. And it sucked dick. And it wasn't fun. What you're doing is at least fun and entertaining. And you're providing entertainment to uh, everyone else. So you're seeming more and more tone deaf and unappreciative of where you're at. And you can you can couch that with, with your little half jokes and things of that nature. But now it's really fucking annoying to me saying stuff like that. So now he's talking about the media's response was stupid and irresponsible. I have an idea. Don't attach a shameless PR stunt to your quote-unquote selfless call for help then. Go behind the scenes and speak to Google. Talk to your MCN if you think there's something shady going on or something you don't like. If you think you got pull with Google, then what you can do then is use that pull to find out what's going on. March into Google headquarters and be like, hey guys, I'm the biggest YouTuber. Let's figure this shit out. And then when it's figured out, you can come back and tell us and be and be like, hey, guys, I, I spoke to YouTube. I figured it out. Not saying I'm going to delete my channel. Uh, like, like it's just again, it's, I'm just irritated now at this point that I have to keep talking about this. Like, because because you called out the media response being stupid and irresponsible. That's why. OK, moving on. <laughs> Let's talk about the get uh, covered Twitch event that happened on December 12th. So December 12th. Three days before December 15th 
was a cutoff for signing up for the uh, health insurance for 2017, for 2017 so you don't get taxed via the Affordable Care Act, which, again, which is the only reason the Supreme Court verified it can exist. It's because it's a tax, which was surprising and shocking because a Republican uh, Republican uh, Supreme Court justice said, hey, it's a tax. It can it can stand. And the rest of the Republicans are like, what the fuck did you do, Justice Roberts? Anyway, I'm not going to go off on that, but I'll, I will get into politics a little bit just because I have to want to talk about this. But what was the Twitch uh, Get Covered event? It was at the White House, which I'm going to assume I'm going to I'm going to assume it was the White House because, for all I know, it could have been at some high school gymnasium with a nice backdrop. But everyone was dressed in a suit and tie, including uh, my buddy uh, Andre Meadows. I think was there, like he was there for the event, but not off. I don't remember seeing him on the Twitch event. Then again, I, I I did not watch all four hours or five hours. I sort of um, just cut through it like quickly, sort of skimmed it. It was about, from what I saw, about a third gaming and about two-thirds talking about why you should get covered, why insurance is a good idea. For the record, health insurance is a great idea to have. I'm not going to deny that. Now, how health insurance has been implemented through the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, that's the huge debate. That we that the country is still not really sure about, and most Americans don't like where it's ended up. I'll try to stay away from that conversation too much politically, but I want to get into more about what this event was. So you had some bigger uh, Twitch people, you had some YouTubers on there, you even had uh, some heartfelt stories from like the creator of that Dragon Cancer, or his four-year-old unfortunately died of cancer, talking about how health insurance helped out his family because of the high cost. Again, health insurance itself isn't the issue here. Uh, the issue is what this event was and what it did and what it did not do. So from what I saw, uh, they they live-streamed stuff like Street Fighter V. They live-streamed uh, Rocket League, you know, that fun car, soccer game, you know, stuff like that. Um, and in between that, had anecdotes about the ACA <coughs> and why you should sign up. But the, the problem I have with this event, uh, the main problem, not for the people involved with it, uh, Twitch, I don't know what they get out of it. Maybe they get they got an in with the White House, someone on the tech side, lobby. I have no idea. The problem is that this is an inherently biased event, politically. Without trying to try not to choose a side politically, but only one political party uh, passed this ACA act. Uh, the, well, that's redundant. Only one political party passed the ACA and the other party didn't vote on it at all. So one party owns this out there. So Twitch, the Twitch audience start young, 12, they, they can't buy their own insurance, but goes up until like the mid to late 20s and the 30s. So in order for the Affordable Care Act and the insurance exchange and the insurance companies to make money off of this, which, by the way, the insurance companies helped write the Affordable Care Act, which is one big fucking reason why I'm against it or was to begin with um, because they were guaranteeing themselves profit when writing the law. The main audience are the ones that get, keep this going because the younger people that make even a, a decent amount of money don't qualify for the subsidies, which are tax credits to help pay for the insurance. And we are paying into the system to help out us. We are actually paying uh, for other people to get insurance to make it affordable. So on the surface, this law has winners and losers. People like me are most uh, are less likely to use it because we are healthier because we are younger and or 
active. But overall, a 30-year-old, a 25-year-old, a 20-year-old, less likely to use it versus a 50-year-old, 16, 70. That's just the odds. That's the way it makes sense uh, for something like this to, to happen. You need the younger people to support the older ones in the system. It's like Social Security. Everyone's paying in. That money's going to be waiting for me, hopefully, but where's that money going to right now? It's going to someone else. You know, so the problem with this event was that it was more about, uh, you know, why you personally should get health care insurance, but not like what goes into the decisions that from what I saw. So, for example, when you go on this, ex- uh, the exchange, which, again, if you have if you're covered through your company, most of this conversation won't mean anything to you because m- the majority of Americans get health care through their full time job which the, the ACA affected as well, won't get into that. Let's just talk about who actually uses these exchanges. And there's two types of uh, types of exchanges. There's a federal exchange, the one that's totally was fucked up when it launched. Remember, they couldn't get it working for months. It cost a few hundred million dollars. To me, a national disgrace that it cost so much and didn't work. And couldn't even, like, the calculator was even working on the website. I mean, it was, it was, this wasn't just me talking about this, or this isn't any left or right bias. This is fact. Go back and look at how, how much of a disaster that was. Uh, what was that, four years ago? Uh, trying to get that up and running. Um, so there's that, and then thankfully I'm in California, which built their own state exchange, which actually works. So when you, you so so you search for insurance, you put in your information, uh, how much you made. Uh, you can say, Pat, do they trust you? Well, then you you have to either uh, if if you qualify for a subsidy or tax credit, which is what it really is, um, you have to upload uh, either proof proof of income or your last year uh, W two, showing that hey, I'm not lying, I'm only making two dollars a year. So, but then you pick your plan, and, and this is what why this Twitch stream bothered me, uh, or at least rubbed me the wrong way. Because what's important for young people to know is different types of healthcare insurance. Should you go with the bronze plan, which is more like an emergency plan, versus a silver plan, versus a gold plan, versus a platinum plan? What do those things mean? What is a deductible? What is a premium? What is a max out-of-pocket cost? What's a coinsurance? What does 10% coinsurance mean? Is that better than 90% coinsurance? These are questions that hopefully on the Federal Exchange Answers, on the California site, you can look up some of this stuff. But these are questions that you really should be imparting to your audience. Should you take the risk, if you're younger, go for a cheaper plan with a lower premium but maybe a high deductible? And so maybe that'll cost you two grand a year, but then if you get really sick, it might cost you, I don't know, eight grand versus going for a plan where the premium might then cost you 4000 a year, but then the maximum out-of-pocket cost is only 5000 You know, uh, maybe one has a better drug plan than another. See, see, this is important info. Playing Rocket League while fun is not imparting information to someone to make an informed decision about their life and their health that's very important to them and to their wallet. By by sort of making this an event that made the gaming the main attraction, what you're doing then is, I think, subverting the message. And then it turns into a form of... I don't want to say it like that. I think it becomes... Soft propaganda at that point. And I hope that's not too strong. That's why I said soft. Because at the very best, what you're doing 
is having people go and buy insurance for something and not make not and having them uh, not be informed enough. At the worst, though, um, you're you're making having them make horrible decisions that maybe they shouldn't be uh, getting. Now you can say, "Oh, Pat, well maybe they're not aware of this to begin with." First of all, I don't know how they are because you've been taxed on it already. Uh, this was the first year you were taxed last year if you didn't have health insurance, so you are aware of it that you have to get insurance or your tax. But then, second of all, why is it three days before the deadline? Why not do it a month before? You know what I mean? Like, why not have this be a whole outreach? Why not have events leading up to this with scheduled events on Twitch through the White House? Why just one fucking five-hour weird-ass event? Where people play Street Fighter for 20 minutes and then some someone comes on and says, yeah, I broke my leg last year and it was paid for. Again, health insurance is a great idea. This just was sort of a weird way to convey that health insurance is a good idea. And again, if you're if you're lacking the, the all the information, I don't know. I, I just think it's strange. It just doesn't ring true. But again, they want the impressionable uh, Twitch audience. They're the ones that help prop the system up, which is one of the reasons why... Uh, you could be seeing the death spiral of the ACA because not enough young people are, are buying into it. A lot of them are rather taking the tax instead. Hopefully they didn't buy it hook, line, and sinker without realizing that, hey, there's some real decisions involved here. The good news, though, with the ACA is not at all all bad. There's pre-existing conditions that were there, which, well, you could have done that without the ACA. There's ways of doing that, which I won't get into. And also, uh, you can stay on your parents' insurance until you're 26, so I'm guessing most of those Twitch, most maybe 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 the whole message was lost because most of the Twitch audience they're 13 years old, 14 years old. They're already on their parents' insurance. So maybe it's okay. I don't know. All I know is my insurance plan sucks dick. Um, I'm paying a ton. I know other people. Again, this isn't a right or left issue. I know a friend in, in another state that's going to be paying a ton of money. Had a choice between only two plans. I'm lucky. I'm in California, uh, one of the biggest states in terms of health insurance options. I had about 25 options. None really good. A couple of ones were like, okay, I'm going to be paying a lot more. I want to, but for someone with only two choices, you know, I feel bad, but that's why, again, this is an unpopular, uh, law overall. I want to follow up the uh, Second and Charles story I did last time. So Second and Charles is a secondhand uh, store, uh, Second and Charles, uh, where you can trade. And it's a used media store for books, music CDs, movies, and, and video games. Used video games. So someone for, uh, informed me that they talked with uh, an employee at the Augusta, Augusta, Georgia location, one of the 30 locations, and was told uh, that, you know, they're, they're, it's now corporate policy that unusable uh, games can be thrown out. Um, so there was some blowback from that in terms of some YouTubers saying that's not true. They still have a free bin, which by the way, I never said there was no more free bin in the video. Nor did that guy say there wasn't a free bin. It's just that he said less things showed up in the free bin from in the past after he was informed of this new policy. That was the, that was the main sticking point in his mind. Um, so, there was that, but then there was also supporting facts like, well, um, yeah, I dumpster dive at Second and Charles and I find consoles. That people were saying that in the comments as well. Which, again, you, you don't know if that's coming from the Second and Charles employees and staff themselves. Who knows? It's 30 locations. Corporate policy does not necessarily always trickle down to what actually happens at individual stores, as we know. So the social media manager of Second and Charles saw the podcast segment, though, and got in touch with me and wanted to... Uh, clarify a few things i will start by saying this she was very very nice and i did not grill her but i really wanted to find out how the retro game uh 
buying and selling trade-in program worked at Second and Charles, since I was not really familiar from the start with this, as I said in the last podcast, in this chain. And they're fairly new, from what I understand. So, I asked her a few things. Uh, I first, I first asked, because at first it wasn't clear what game systems are in each store to test. So this is the list she told me. Um, that she said, I've confirmed we have several systems in our stores that allow us to test a variety of gaming systems at all 32nd and Charles locations. So maybe you can confirm this in the comments. Do they have in every location NES, Super Nintendo, Game Boy, Game Boy Advance, DS, GameCube, Wii, Wii U, Genesis, PS, PS2, PS3, PS4, Xbox 360, and Xbox One? She followed up. Other than that, the buyback for... I spoke to her for like 25 minutes, but this was the email, the follow-up email. Other than that, the buyback for used games and consoles is on a case-by-case basis. To reiterate, buyback is determined for games and consoles based on if we can easily... We'll come back to that. Easily confirm playability and inventory need. Second and Charles employees do not put items into the free bin unless it is their personal property. And as I stated... Items are cycled out of the free bins rather quickly due to the fact that they are free. So that was something that I questioned on because what I'll get into is the fact that while Second and Charles employees cannot put items into the free bin, they can take them out to dispose of them, which I'll get into. But she claims that's rare, the social media manager, because uh, in her estimation from, this is from Second and Charles corporate, that there's turnover that's so high every week that they don't get a chance to do that. Again, I don't know how much you can verify that unless you have a uh, sur- surveillance camera watching all 30 locations in the free bins to know that. I don't know. Uh, but, okay, we'll come back to that. As for the corporate policies mentioned in yesterday's podcast, we are a buy-sell trade culture that embraces retro and vintage everything. It is not, nor has it ever been a policy of the companies to throw, away, to throw anything away. We, we do and will continue to use our free bins at all of our 30 locations, which, again, we never said that there was not free bins there. That was never a contention, a point of contention that they were getting rid of their free bins, from, from what I understand from my podcast. It's just that maybe they're starting to throw stuff out. Um, so, uh, so this is from the parent company's Books A Million, by the way, just so we get that clear. So I want to come back to something here. Again, corporate policy doesn't always necessarily trickle, trickle down to the front lines. So we can go off of, of, of two different thoughts here. Either the person received bad information from the manager in Augusta, Georgia, had an axe to grind himself, or the employee um, had an axe to grind or, and was giving, or was given false information from his manager. There's a lot of ways you can look at this. In terms of the buyback situations differing, they're based upon a few things. Storage concerns. If there's not storage for a particular item, they may be able to turn it away. That's that's one key. They have, this is all in quotes, this is told me, standards of functionality and standards of cleanliness. If you recall from the last podcast, one of the main points about a game being usable and sellable was that it had to be able to be cleaned easily. And I confirm that. Like, if, there's, if, they, if this is a gunked up or bad label, they're not going to want it. For, for a video game, or for a book from what I understand. It has to be, maybe not quite new, but presentable for the shelf. That's how I understood it. They don't want stuff that's in fair condition or beat up. They want stuff that looks like presentable. 
And I'll get into why that's an issue in a bit. So they have standards of functionality for their trade-ins for video games and standards of cleanliness. So I come in with a, a, a video game, an NES. If the labels looks a little bit off to them, that's up to the individual employee to say, okay, no, we don't want this. It looks dirty. You can have the option then to put it in the free bin because according to the court mandate, the employees themselves aren't doing that. So he's telling me it's no good. I'm an average person off the street. Okay? At that point then, what if this is a game, any game, I don't know, Deathbots, a game where the labels to begin with because it's a, an American video entertainment game, they're not all good to begin with. If I'm an average, average person and I don't want to do the research or maybe I'm in a rush or just found this stuff, what if I take that to me my game is worthless and I throw it in the trash myself and I don't throw it in the free bin? That's a possibility. That's a real possibility. But here's a more important possibility, and one that I think is being missed here in this conversation, which will link back to GameStop and their retro initiative. What if I bring in an NES game that doesn't turn on right away? Does that employee know, or is that employee qualified to know why that game's not working? Is he qualified, or has he been instructed to clean that game and to test it thoroughly, as would be done in a, tra- in a traditional retro game store, like Luna Video Games? Or, after standards of functionality, in quotes, are not met, will that game then come back to me, and I'm told my death box is unsellable, because it's not working? And maybe the employee doesn't know any better? Hell, remember, these are employees that are dealing with books, CDs, DVDs and video games. It's hard to be an expert on one of these, let alone all four. And I would argue that retro video games is the hardest of them all in order to manage and in order to test for and, and, and to know what the hell's going on with that particular console and that game library. So I can envision tons of scenarios where people walk in with games that could be a little dirty or hell, maybe the system is being tested on is dirty. The NES is notorious for being a finicky system. That main, that main pin can get very dirty. Are they cleaning those systems out? Or if, or is one person bringing in 10 games, none of them are powering up, so those are unsellable because they don't have the standards of functionality that I'm told the games are worthless. And since I don't know any better, I throw them in the dumpster because I don't want to put them in the free bin because they're no good. You don't think that's a possibility? Is that insane to think? I don't think that's insane. That seems reasonable, because when you have employees that aren't experts at retro video games, that's what happens. We've seen it with GameStop. We've seen people uh, accept games that weren't the right game, were counterfeits, were pirated carts. And that's at a game store with game store employees. This is a general media store. These are not experts. Are they trained to know what to look for? That's all the conversation, but I'll bring it up now. I'm thinking about it now. Are they trained to look for counterfeit labels or swapped uh, ROM boards? I don't know, a GBA Pokemon fake. Are they trained to know what to look for? Probably not. Because they're not at GameStop. Hell, they're not. game. And the, and the front line of GameStop, they ship them back somewhere to be looked at anyway. And we could say whether or not that's been effective or not. But at a, at a store like uh, Second and Charles, where they're dealing with, again, games, movies, books, and uh, music at the same time, you really think they're on the time and expertise to know all these systems in and out? You really think that to begin with? To know, uh, besides the game is a little bit dirty and saying it's not acceptable, to say that the functionality, the functionality is not up to par? This comes to another part now. 
And this is where uh, I might hear back from Second and Charles because I didn't get the, the, a clear answer, and I'm not sure there was a clear cor- corporate policy on this. So if it's corporate policy that employees there tell the customer if the game, quote-unquote, doesn't, uh, doesn't have the standards of cleanliness, whatever the hell that really means, and, and or standards of functionality aren't met, that put it into the free bin. So then I go put it in the free bin, and then at that point, what happens if that game's not picked up? What happens if that console that doesn't meet the standards of functionality is in there? Well, I ask, can games be then taken out of those free bins? Are items taken out of those free bins? Free bins, books, CDs. And I was told by corporate, yes, employees can look in those free bins and they can take out items that are, in quotes, unusable. So if it's a completely unusable video game, that's a direct quote, they can take it out of the free bin. I was told that if it's a disc that's scratched up, uh, maybe it's a console where... um. A part's missing, and I was told, well, you know, it's not it's not usable, so they take it out. What do you think happens to it then? Do you think they keep it on the shelf, or is it chucked out? Let's be reasonable. But that's the danger. Why am I letting employees at a media store, a general media store, to decide what is and what is, what is not, quote-unquote, uh, up to the standards of cleanliness to begin with? The standards of functionality to turn it away, but then once it's in the free bin, they get to decide what's unusable or not. So because an NES is missing the front uh, cartridge door on it, does that mean it's unusable? Not to me, not to you out there, not to anyone who knows anything about retro games, but to that employee, maybe it does and it gets chucked out. I don't know. This is what's so iffy and weird about this. Where it's almost a shame that they have the free bin to begin with. Yes, it's good for the random person. If you're in that area, you know you're going to hit it up. And now you better hit it up. Because now you can have stuff that's quote-unquote completely unusable thrown out. What if a disc is scratched on a game, but it can be refinished? What if it's a game, uh, a rare game, and maybe just the case is there? And maybe it's missing the game. Like a Mutant League Hockey. What if the label's ripped up on a Mutant League Hockey? I've seen it, the one I found on my swap meet. Now it might be thrown out or God knows who knows what happens because some employee there says it's completely unusable. Who? Why do they get to decide that? I'd be a lot more comfortable if that employee or that, or if it was corporate policy, at least for the retro video games. Now books, you know, books are a dime a dozen, literally. Uh, you don't have to worry about that as much. And that's a lot easier to deal with. But I'd be more comfortable if they found either a local mom-and-pop retro game shop or, I don't care, even a dirt flea market seller or a local eBay reseller where instead of deciding that stuff is completely unusable because I'm so uncomfortable with that term, taking all that stuff out of that free bin that you're ready to chuck out in your eyes, putting it aside, contacting someone locally, and letting them decide. Letting them decide if it's worthless because at least those people have the knowledge that you don't. That your store doesn't. Unless every one of your 30 locations has multiple employees that are experts in retro video games. Because I highly doubt that's the case. Because I even asked if they will have employees look and test everything in the free bin. And that's not happening. Again, 
if it's not if it's a quote unquote completely unusable video game, which could mean either the standards of functionality they're not testing the game in the free bin that's a waste of their time, or the standards of cleanliness that could be the reason it's there. If that's not met, they can say it's completely unusable. Which brings me to another part though, and this is where stuff would get thrown out. They have a clearance section. I was told, uh, and again the the woman was very nice on the phone, and it's not and she's just you know she's relaying what's a corporate policy, which I totally understand. So it's not on her. But I'm just a little agitated about this because we're not all fools about what corporations do. We know that GameStop has thrown out stuff. Companies do this. They're not, they're not, they're there to make money. They're not there for, for uh, goodwill. Hell, even goodwill could, could technically not be there for goodwill. It's a whole conversation. Anyway, but they have a clearance section and if stuff's been in the clearance, clearance section for a while, it gets sent, gets sent back to the corporate warehouse or the main warehouse. What do you think happens then? I don't, I don't know if they're, if they're selling that stuff online. Um, do you think they're more likely to ship out clearance items, uh, a PS2 uh, Texas Hold'em game? Are they going to ship that out and waste the money to go ship it to, to a warehouse and then ship it elsewhere uh, You know, across the country? Are they more likely to do that or to uh, damage out that game, throw it out, and then write it off as a tax deduction since, since they paid someone for that game to begin with. What do you think is more likely, the more likely scenario? Tossing it at that point or not? And that's the issue here. When you have companies getting into a, a market, like GameStop getting back into the retro game market, well, they're not experts at it. They're not caretakers of it. They don't have the passion for it. They, their corporate speak and say whatever they want about, well, you know, culture embraces retro and vintage everything. All right. That's what you say. So show me then your training manual for retro games for your stores, for every one of these systems. Show me what the procedure is for cleaning for these systems. Show me in black and white what it means for a game to be completely unusable and either standards of functionality or standards of cleanliness. Is there a chart from 1 to 10? Where five is acceptable and four is not for how clean a game is before you reject it and tell some grandma off the street, well, that Super Mario 3 cartridge, a little too dirty for me. We can't sell it. So that grandma then chucks it in the garbage? Because it's up to her. If she thinks it's, that's the problem. Because you, because the store says it's unusable, the average person might think it's worthless to anyone else. They don't know. They're not, they don't know the retro game scene or hobby. So they might chuck it in the dumpster instead of even throwing the free bin. I have so many problems now and more questions about this free bin now that I know about it. I really do. So that's it on this topic. I don't want to talk about this really again. Again, this isn't, I'm not saying Second and Charles is being nefarious here. I just think it's a corporation. They're probably more interested in, in books. And CDs and DVDs, and they are retro games, but they say, you know, hey, this retro game thing's hot now. Well, we got to get in on it. Hell, that's what GameStop did. They ignored retro games for like 12 years and got back into it. Why not? But what I'm saying is th- this has to be thought of outside of, well, this is just a fucking uh, Marky Mark CD from 91 that no one really cares about, or you can get the music anywhere else. You know, if people are, are chucking stuff into the free bin, when either they shouldn't, they should be getting some sort of uh, cash back for it or traded because it's a little dirty or stuff's being taken out. Uh, you know, the, the console, the console thing, a, a potentially broken console could be used for parts. Doesn't mean it's unusable. 
Don't I? I do not want local stores deciding and local employees not trained deciding again what is quote unquote completely unusable and what is not. That just really bothers me. The first month of sales was reported for the NES Classic Edition in the U.S. And shocker, it was a fairly small amount sold. It was 196,000. It sold out, obviously. This is part of its November uh, report. The MPD group announced this week that Nintendo sold 196,000. That's that's not a lot for something that has so much hype and something that you know is one of the hottest items of the Christmas. That is such a low amount that I hope someone at Nintendo is fucking fired. Uh, you know, if this was something where they could only manufacture that that amount, then that's then that's incompetence in terms of having the right distribution going on or you know the right manufacturing outlets. You know, doing the pieces needed. I don't know. Was there a ROM chip uh, shortage like there was in '88 for you know Zelda Two? I, I have no idea, but that's incredibly low. The amount, the amount of money they made. Let me some pat math here. Is I'm so disappointed in that low amount. So 196,000 times 60, 11 million 760,000 gross. I'm gonna say. Profit off of that. Nintendo probably charged, I don't know, they probably charged like 45 per. They can get away with it. Let's just say the cost was $30 per. Uh, or whatever, $10 per. Let's say the profit was 30 bucks, So half, which is probably around right. They made like $6 million only off the NES Classic Edition. A company of Nintendo size, that's inexcusable. They could have shipped 5 million of these and probably sold most of them. Let's just say they would have sold 4 million, which I don't think is out of the question. So that would be 4 million, pat math, times 60, times 0.5. Um, yeah, they could have made like $120 million. Think about that. They could have made, if it, even if it wasn't 4 million, if it was like 2 or 3, they could have made dozens of millions of dollars off the NES Classic Edition. And instead they made less than 10. Why? Because they, because of artificial, uh, artificial choking of, of the supply. I don't know. Now there have been good stories. Unfortunately, I got a good tweet that actually a guy was grinning ear to ear. That he he went to his Best Buy, stood in line early in the morning, got a ticket to come back and bought it at eight o'clock in the morning. Didn't have to go through a dirty scalper and got it. So I think there's gonna be more readily available. Uh, in, in January, they're, they're more available now than they were before, but it's still just awful. Did they overestimate the demand? I don't see how you could do that. They 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 know how many of those fucking Atari flashbacks sell, and the Genesis ones. They they'd have to realize they do at least five to ten times of those conservatively. Ten times uh, the Atari flashback conservatively. Let's see. Think Geek did a lottery about it. Best Buy got more in. I heard other stories about other places getting uh, more in. Just just weak sauce, man. Do they really think it's worth the 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 sort of okay? We want the hottest toy that's hard to get. Is that worth giving up dozens of millions of dollars of profit? If I'm a shareholder at Nintendo, I'm pissed. I'm absolutely pissed. If I'm a CEO or higher up that wanted to 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 produce as many of these as possible, there's no guarantee this money is going to come back. After Christmas. People have money to spend now. 
People are buying gifts now. They have a reason to buy uh, the NES, NES Classic Edition now. In January or February, that reason is gone. Christmas is gone at that point. Just really just awful decision-making. Just absolutely abysmal. When we, when we first thought about this in July, Ian and I, I think we, we, we said this could easily sell 2 to $3 million. I think I think I said something like five million in the first few months, or something. Like, I knew five million came up maybe within the first year. I was probably being conservative after this. They could have sold a few million this Christmas. They could have marketed. It. I saw no commercials for this. They could have pumped out a few million of these and then ran commercials. You imagine if they ran commercials for this during like like NFL games, Monday Night Football, during you know, Monday Night Raw, or it would have been huge. They've had the Tecmo Super Bowl commercials with Bo Jackson. People are like, wow, that's Nintendo. They followed that up with an NES Classic Edition commercial, including Tecmo Bowl. You would have sold 100,000 every freaking NFL game that you advertised it with. I'm probably not even, that's not even probably even hyperbole. That's all lost. That's gone now. Of course, Nintendo doesn't necessarily need that extra money, but that's the reason businesses, businesses exist, is to make money. So, just it's a shame, absolute shame about it. Um, I hope you get one. Don't give in to the dirty scalpers. They, there's more and more coming. After Christmas, they'll be easier to get. And I think those uh, those dirty scalpers will be forced to then move them or else that guy's sitting on 20 of them. You know, those receipts have a time limit. Um, after, you know, usually I think Ian said 30 days of electronics, something like that. So there you go. How about a Kickstarter? This is called Dream World Pogey. There is a tie-in to a certain NES guidebook. This is, I'll get into why. So this was developed by the Oliver Twins. They worked on uh, a bunch of Codemasters games, slash Comerica, who published them in the U.S., Codemasters in Europe. Like, you know, you know, like those, those, funky NES games with the, you know, the gold, uh, the gold cards and licensed games, you know, like, uh, what do we got here? We got, uh, Big Nose, Big Nose the Caveman, stuff like that. You have the Quattro games, for example. They had their own sort of cute computer, uh, look and feel. Micro Machines, the bubble, that bubble music, Ultimate Stuntman. Uh, definitely a unique graphical look. It's almost not NES. It's like, well, they're like computers. Like maybe you look like an Amiga game or something. Um, so, Dreamworld Pogi is a platformer. It looks like a pretty high high paced platformer. The the it's interesting that the Kickstarter video shows the twins rummaging through the attic and all the the code and games they have and just like oh look at this look at this and then oh they they have tons of boxes and they found one box where it says uh let's see what does it say in the box uh, Pogi NES uh, development I think it says. And then there's a there's an uh, NES like ROM card inside, which I think is cute. But they also look, go through like the, okay, they have the discs that the codes on. They have all all the the notes they had from back then, some art stuff. It's Xeroxed. So Pogi's a cute little what is he? What 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 the hell is he? He's like a purple big eared looking gremlin looking guy, teddy bear Pogi. It's adorable. It's like a fast paced game from the from uh, the gameplay here. Um, you, you're collecting stars. At one point, it was like you're invincible. Here, they already reached the goal. The goal is only seven thousand four hundred twenty-seven. Very small goal, and I respect that a lot. They're up to eleven thousand already. Um, the quality of this game, I have no doubt, it is going to be pretty good. I mean, those those uh, I like Big Nose Freaks Out. Big Nose of Caveman is pretty good. 
Uh, Micro Machines is, is all right, three stars according to a certain NES guidebook. So, by and large, the Codemasters games are, are at least pretty good, except for the Quattro games, which is sort of like the shovel bullshit they put on those three cartridges. And I want to think that a game like this... Man, if only someone did a guidebook. A game like this was on, I think, either Quattro Arcade, I want to say, or Adventure, or something like Pogi, but I'm not positive... There was a Pogi game, but I should because I fucking reviewed it for the book, but I'm tired and can't think of it. I'm hungry. I need a burrito. So anyway, so the game's only going to cost you if you want the game. And by the way, it's supposed to come out in February 2017 to be delivered. 25 bucks for the cartridge, and hopefully it's not using a donor, donor cart, I'm guessing. Um, it is a little more for the signed one. You can get a book for 38 Um, You can get a box game. Or boxed sign game. The box game is a very reasonable fifty-one dollars. Uh, you can get the any you can get the game in either PAL A, PAL B, or NTSC. That's a cool option, right there. Um, the box version looks pretty fun. There's fifteen sugar-coated levels of arcade action with everyone's everyone's lovable pet fluffle pogey. Okay, fluffle. Then there's going to be a book, the story of the Oliver Twins, which is going to tell about their times, I guess. Uh, with uh, developing games for Codemasters, uh, things like that. So why is this a cool project to back? Because, hell, these are the developers. They own the, the ROM, they own the cartridge, and they get to see their work get paid off. That's pretty cool, right? Uh, I, I don't like talking about these Kickstarters usually um, if it's if the copyright holders aren't involved and if I think they are not legal to be doing <clears throat> it sucks a cat. <clears throat> it sucks a cat. So, in this case, though, the guys that coded the game are in the video showing you the development documents. They're not hiding anything. They're not pretending they own the rights to, to the game when they really don't. And they deserve to make the game and make some profit off it. So, good on them for doing it. So, uh, check this out. And by the way, the reason why it connects to the book is because on the last page of the book, um, before the before the uh, uh, the Kickstarter thanks, um, there's a there's two pages of single screenshots of games that have been released yet. As an example, and Dream World Pogi is one of them. Um, as a, a game that has not been released, but now it's getting it's it's getting its uh, due diligence here. It's getting its uh, you know it deserves it. It's been what 25 years. So good on the Oliver Twins to get this project out. You have until Saturday, January 14th to fund this. And, yeah, it, it hit the goal already. And it was a reasonable goal. Two good guys. This was developed in January 93, this game. Dreamworld, Pogi, check it out. Let's talk a little Loot Crate, huh? Sponsor. Looking for gear, collectibles, houseware, and more from your favorite pop culture franchises? Loot Crate's got you covered. Loot Crate offers a range of geek and gamer items for less than $20 a month. Want to bring your loot to the next level? Get a bigger box with even bigger loot with Loot Crate DX. Are you ready? If you're more the type to wear your geeky heart in your sleeve, then Lootware, the monthly wearables and accessories subscription, is what you're looking for. Check out LootCrate.com Pat and enter code Pat to save 10% on any new Loot Crate Sign up. I'm wearing a shirt right now from a loot crate. Uh, I'm wearing the Power Rangers shirt. And uh, yeah, that that loot wear is actually legit. My girl uh, stole my Nightmare Before Christmas socks. I want to look better on her than me. And uh, she's wearing them proudly. All right. Twitch is coming out with Twitch IRL in real life. So what exactly is this, Twitch in real life? So 
Twitch built itself on live streaming games. Before that, it was just in TV originally, and then Twitch was sort of an offshoot. Then Twitch sort of took over because they didn't want to offer random streaming anymore for stuff that wasn't gaming. That's just what, what it was. But now they want to get back into it. It's a category for creators' non-gameplay content. Um, they're revamping the community guidelines to specifically allow broadcasting of non-gaming content. And in 2017, it will add live streaming to the Twitch mobile app to let users go live directly from their smartphones. Um, the Twitch rep insisted that IRL, in real life, does not represent a rebirth of Justin TV. They said Justin TV was a platform created to stream random content, while Twitch has always been hyper-focused on the community and their wants. Uh, he had that Twitch's infrastructure features and monetization are well ahead of where, where Justin TV was. Why wouldn't it? That was years ago. I think, I think Justin TV died out early 2014. With Twitch broadcasters able to make money on their channels via the company's partnership program. And that's the key here, the partnership program. This is what Twitch has that YouTube doesn't. Uh, they still have Twitch. A, a select small percentage are partnered up for ad content to earn as opposed to YouTube where anyone now can get uh, videos monetized. Why is that important? Well, on YouTube, as I spoke about last time, there's not enough ads to fill all the video views. YouTube's in a little bit of trouble there. They're underwater. On Twitch, they're probably not. And they want to have their partners make them probably more money and make themselves more money. Because let's be honest, a lot of time when, when you're on Twitch, you know, a lot of the conversation has nothing to do with the game. It could be a, a Twitch person randomly talking about their life while they're playing a game. I don't go on Twitch too often to know, but I assume that's what it is. That's what the community's focused on. You know, people want to find out what's going on besides, hey, you're just playing, I don't know, uh, Minecraft. You know, how's your day? What are you eating? What do you, you know? So I think they see this as a way to keep the subscribers and the, and the followers, subscribers, which one is which? Subscribers pay, followers don't. Keep them on Twitch and keep, more importantly, the partners on Twitch. They'd rather have the, the Twitch partners, I think. Twitch would rather have them, have the partners, go from playing a game to then, okay, I'm going to go out to eat with my friends, and then live stream out on the app while they're at the fucking Olive Garden eating their free salad and breadsticks versus them recording that video and putting it on YouTube or using YouTube Live or streaming on YouTube, or using Facebook Live, or Vine, well, that's going away. You see what I mean? Or just using Twitch. They'd rather keep their big partners on Twitch, making money for themselves, but also making money for Twitch on Twitch. That's probably a good way to maximize uh, the profit of the platform. Keep them on there, right? Why not? I think it's a great idea. Uh, remember, Amazon bought them uh, a couple years ago. Right, or a year and a half ago, and now that's part of Amazon Prime, Twitch Prime, which to me is a really good deal. So, Amazon's called shots now. Big Amazon, big buddy Amazon's like, yeah, we want to let's let's hype, let's speed up this whole profit thing. Let's make a little more money for uh, Pappy Amazon here. Let's do that. So, I don't think this is a play at YouTube, just because. Um, I'm not sure what the percentage of videos is that people go back and watch on Twitch when it's not live, but I'm sure it's not anywhere near watching stuff happen on Twitch live. But I don't know if if there's going to be the infrastructure built in to keep the videos. Right now, I think a partner's videos are kept for 60 days or 90 or 30 days. It's not forever. I did download the 7th the annual NES Marathon video, so just be safe. 
The partner's videos are not kept forever. That's the one part. Even though you can create highlights, if you do that, then they're, it's kept forever. Okay, that's the caveat. Then your subscribers can see it, things like that. Uh, remember, they did la- launch Twitch Creative less than, uh, was that, a year ago? Or about a year ago. Remember, they did, they did the whole Bob Ross marathon? So they are experimenting with this, other ways to make money besides gaming. So they are going, they don't admit it, uh, but Twitch is going backwards, but that's not a, necessarily a bad thing. Because you need more competition. Ustream shit the bed. Because Ustream needs to be a competitor. And they went corporate and totally lost a plot when they could have uh, went for gaming and they didn't, which was to their detriment. Holy shit. Those people at Ustream must have been freaking thrown out the top, top window of a, a skyscraper because they could have been they could have been Twitch if they went towards gaming. But didn't happen. And now no one even talks about Ustream anymore. You know, we don't use it for the NS Marathon anymore, unfortunately. Would you want to see me? Uh, in real life at the swap meet on Twitch. <laughs> that would kill my data. If I had uh, unlimited data, I would I would stream from the flea market. I think that would be fantastic uh, for everyone. See Frank live, see me live, see me yell at uh, evil resellers. That would be fantastic. Let's talk about this strange article from The Atlantic. Nintendo's sad struggle for survival. Facing an uncertain future, the company keeps trying to mine its storied past by Ian Bogost. So, this is a strange article, a little pretentious, not just because the guy's using $5 words and really uh, wore out his thesaurus while writing it, but because he's he he's melding together the story of what Nintendo was versus what it is now and the strategy going forward. Talking about what we all know about Nintendo helped, uh, you know, save the North American video game market. Uh, and then the games were cartooning, like Super Mario Brothers, Duck Hunt, Legend of Zelda. They were innocuous. And then Nintendo didn't grow up. Uh, gaming changed around them with Doom and Mortal Kombat and blah, 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 blah. So, but then he talks about the NES Classic Edition and goes off the fucking rails here. His main quote here and the one that's highlighted is... To buy an NES Classic Edition isn't to express an interest in playing classic Nintendo games again, so much as it is a totem. And a totem's a fucking symbol, if you don't want a thesaurus. Um, that's such a pretentious statement, because the author is assuming he knows the motivations of everyone buying the NES Classic Edition. He's assuming that the casual person off the street that hasn't played an NES in 25 years... Just wants a little mini version just because of how the, uh, the console lo- looks versus remembering fondly playing Tecmo Bowl or playing Ninja Gaiden or Mega Man 2 or one of the other 30 games on the console. That just turns my stomach. And it's not just, it's not because it's cynical, it's because it's wrong on the surface. I'll bring up that story again about that 55 year old in the sushi restaurant. When I was with Frank in the summer, he brought up the NES Classic Edition to me. To me. He knew about it. I know people that their coworkers are bringing up. These aren't retro gamers saying, oh, I'm excited for this. Were they excited about this because it looks like a fucking a mini NES because it's a totem? Or do they actually want to play those games again? Well, the author's deciding for us that it has nothing to do with the games. Absolutely not. No, they want a miniature NES. That they can put on their fucking shelf. That's an insane statement just false on its surface. Because if that's the case, why bother putting games on the damn system at all? 
Why go out and choose 30 of the best games possible that they could get their get the licensing for? Mega Man 2, Ninja Gaiden, Super Mario Bros. 1, 2, and 3, Zelda 1 and 2, Metroid. Why go out and even bother paying money to, to license those, those third-party games? Super C. Couldn't get Contra for some reason, but Super C. Galaga, Pac-Man. These are good games. These, this is not a fucking cash-in by any means when it comes to the games selected. I was impressed by the games. couple of questionable choices overall. Like Tech Mobile? Yeah, people don't have interest in playing these games. What was the average rating again according to a certain NES guidebook? Four, like, it's like four and a quarter stars? The average game included with this? No, people aren't interested in those games at all. It's a fucking little totem. It's a symbol of my, my nostalgia. Are you kidding me? He writes, Ian, not our Ian, but this Ian from the Atlantic. Uh, the experience of the games themselves are less important than the sight and feel of the thing. You have a Nintendo. Again, his opinion. Like, like where does that come from? Where does that come from? Do you think that little kid that wants to play the system cares that it's a little, that the color is gray and ugly? The NES looks like fucking garbage. If you want to get down to it. It's not an attractive looking system. When it came out, we didn't think, oh, look how sleek and sexy the NES is. That gray fucking box. And the reason they picked gray, according to my engineer uh, friend, is because gray plastic, at least back then, was the cheapest plastic you could get. And that's probably also why the game cartridges were gray. Because that's a cheap plastic. The Sega Master System was a sexy system. Genesis. Super Nintendo was a little bit better. Still gray. The NES was not a cute, sexy system. So I don't know what you're talking about there. So, again, uh, uh, to buy an NES Classic uh, Edition isn't to express an interest in playing classic Nintendo games again so much as it is a totem from which to recall the context in which those games were once played. That is insane. So he, what he's saying is the games themselves are important, but you want to remember uh, that nostalgic feeling of playing them on your couch and your console TV when you were young. Again, then why? Then, okay... But I have an NES already, and I still wanted the NES Classic Edition because I thought it was a good product, but I guess he's speaking not to the people who already have an NES. Okay. Or for younger players who have, who have never encountered the system in its heyday, onto which to project a firmly stable, if utterly invented, context against which to contrast the anxiety of the present. I'll read that bullshit statement again, because if you didn't understand it, then I didn't either, but I'll try to get by it. Into it. Or for younger players who never encountered the system in its heyday, onto which to project a firmly stable, if utterly invented, context against which to contrast the anxiety of the present. What anxiety are you speaking of? What does that mean, Ian? What's the anxiety? The anxiety is me trying to get through this horseshit article. That's my anxiety right now. The younger players, the 5 and 10 year olds, and I've seen the pictures of parents with their kids, so they exist. Parents wanting wanting to share their video game experience with them. There's no anxiety for those kids. They want to play Super Mario Bros. 3 on their LCD TV. Maybe their parents are telling them, hey, when I grew up, we didn't have a a fucking uh, games played on a, a mobile device. You know? There was no Xbox One. It was an NES, a great clunky system. And yes, while it looks kind of similar to what I had, I really want to impart these awesome games to you, like Mega Man 2. And, and well, maybe not Ghosts and Goblins. You know, but Excite Bike. You'll have fun playing these simple games. That's the goal. There's no anxiety with that. What's the anxiety? 
He then goes into this really fucking weird story about Cliff Blazinski, who uh, worked on games of uh, Gears of War, working in Blaster Master, and how uh, it was the game he was playing when he learned of his father died, and it just goes off on a fucking tangent that makes it doesn't really lend itself to anything. It should have been cut from the story entirely. I don't know where the editor was here. In retrospect, it's obvious that Nintendo has been a company mining its own nostalgia even as it goes through the motions of innovation and reinvention. Every medium does that. Bands re-release albums, greatest hits. Movies re-release uh, director's cuts and ultimate cuts like Blade Runner or in, the, or in Star Wars, 40 freaking different versions on VHS, DVD, and Blu-ray. Why is that bad? You want to make money. I don't understand. That's bad? So it's going through the motions of innovation. The Wii wasn't innovative? You might think that the Wii is horseshit and that it was quote-unquote a casual system. But to say that it was going through the motions, it literally was motions of innovation. Literally, Ian. Not, not, not our Ian, this Ian. It was literally motions of innovation that made the company uh, fucking... Billions of dollars. It sold over a hundred million consoles. That's insane. The most, the most successful game console ever. The motions of innovation. What does that fucking mean? And then he says that like Super Mario Run, um, is strange because they allowing a company like Apple to police its games. Uh, Apple is not policing Super Mario Run. They're just letting it go on its platform. Google's not going to be policing Super Mario Run when it comes to Android when it's on the Google Play Store. Nintendo could have put any game they damn well pleased on a mobile device, and any company, uh, Apple, Google, whatever, are going to allow it. They could have put a freaking, I don't know, uh, I don't know, what's the, what's the worst black box game that you can think of off the top of your head? Stack Up. They could have put stack up on here and put a, a, a rob in the corner to, to do the commands for, and it would have been on uh, the Apple devices just fine. Apple would have nothing to say about it. They could have put Super Mario 1, 2, and 3 on here and put an awful control pad that would, would have made the game unplayable and charge 60 bucks. and Apple would have no say in the matter at all. That is just a false, pretentious statement that makes no sense. Yes, he, he told me was a, was a curious uh, app more than a game. We know that. Even before issuing the first jump, the player must accept Nintendo's terms of service and privacy policy. Yeah, welcome to the welcome to real life. That happens with any game system you you purchase nowadays. There's a terms of service involved. Any game you buy, for the most part, has terms and service you must accept. That's not a point you're making. You're trying to say like Nintendo's sacrificing its legitimacy somehow by doing an app game that's going to make them tens of millions of dollars in profit. Like, that's bizarre, again. The apparatus built around the game produces even more cognitive dissonance from the article. I'm getting cognitive dissonance reading this. Uh, talking about the complex account and game setup procedure stands between downloaders and their first running of the Mario has this guy bought a console in the past eight years and games? When you buy a game console, 
You can't just like plug it in and start playing. It's got to update like twice, three times, restart multiple times. You have to create your own account, uh, agree to the terms of service, hook up the internet to it, make your account. This has no one downloaded Super Mario Run thinking, "Oh my god, this is taking so long to do this." You gotta be kidding me. Compared to any other sort of gaming device, like a 3DS or something, every device you gotta go through this now. Unbelievable. He's calling, he calls Super Mario Run tone deaf. The video game equivalent of listening to your grandparents using outmoded slang that might have sounded acceptable in another time and place. Modern players will just want to hide their heads. So then what should they have done? What should they have done instead of this game? Would you want them to uh, take their uh, game library and slap it on here? Like, like they did with the uh, the virtual library, the eShop, virtual console and eShop? No. That's not going to happen. I think this was fine. This protects their IP. It makes them money. People are happy. It's getting good reviews so far. It remains to be seen if people get sick of it. Hold their issue. While I'm at it, because you complained, uh, author, about the totem of the NES Classic Edition, what would you have preferred the NES Classic Edition look like if not a miniature NES? The water bottle in my hand? Would that have made more sense? Uh, This hat I have on. A Santa hat. Maybe we'll I'll hook up the HDMI output to that. What would you have preferred the NES Classic Edition look like? Because I'm just curious about that. If not a miniature NES or an NES type of console. What makes the most sense for marketing? To make it look like the original? Or some random fucking sock I have laying on the ground? Because I really don't know what kind of point you're trying to make with that. And just, that just hit me in the head. Uh, from what is Mario running in Super Mario Run? Oh, this is where it gets poignant. The answer is as obvious as it is tragic from the smartphone itself. And in this contest, any victory is pyrrhic. For Nintendo to succeed on iOS is also to admit that its expensive hardware business might be inessential. But to fail on smartphones would only deport Mario and his crew back to the poverty of that very business. Nintendo is trapped. No wonder the company is looking back to the 1980s for relief as much as its fans. This is insane. This It's like this author either doesn't know or, or is ignoring the fact that the Nintendo Switch is coming out in three fucking months. It was just on the Tonight Show and seen by millions and millions of fucking people. The best PR I've seen Nintendo do on anything for the past ten years. People are hyped People are hyped about the Nintendo Switch. That's undeniable. Whether or not it's going to be underpowered, it's not going to live up to expectations, people are buzzing about this fucking console. Way more than the Wii U. Nintendo uh, has to put out this new console. Wii U is dead. That was a failure. 3DS was a pretty damn good success. But that's been dying out because it's been out for like five years and people are going to move on. Nintendo has dominated the handheld market for like 25 years. They've dominated it. But they put out a new iteration every three, four years at least. So they've not admitted their expensive hardware business is inessential. If that was the case, what the fuck's the Nintendo Switch for then? Nintendo's never going third party uh, ever. You're never going to see Nintendo give up their first party hardware. Because they're a toy company. Toy and video game company. That's their strength. The reason Nintendo's going to exist far after everyone listening to this podcast is dead and by the way, they've already been around for like 125 fucking years. The reason they're going to continue to exist is because the, the massive success of the Wii, because of the hardware. 
Why would they give that up because they had one bad stumbling block with the Wii U? 3DS was a massive success. DS success. Game Boy success. Every console has been at least a minor success. Except for the Wii U, which they probably took a bath on, and the Virtual Boy, which, well, that was just fucking awful and abysmal. But they realized it and cut it after like eight months and got it off the market. Other than that, the other 15 consoles Nintendo have put out have all been successes. Like three out of 15, that's not a fucking bad track record for hardware, hardware, is it? Absolutely not. Especially when the second to last one was the biggest piece of hardware ever created for video games in terms of sales. And to say that they're trapped because they're going to a, a smartphone app, this is actually probably overdue to their shareholders. And to everyone, and to everyone enjoying the app, saying, "Oh, this is cool. This is pretty inventive for to get Nintendo IPs onto a smartphone." And it's not, it's not debasing it. It's something uh, keeping within the the um, the universe of Mario and protecting the IP at the same time. Let's see the comments right here, real quick. TurboTastic. This is probably the best response I see. Magazines have been publishing Nintendo's Doom because it doesn't mindlessly imitate everything its competitors do articles since the mid-90s. It's all very predictable, as is the idea that somehow Nintendo is pathetic because it banks on nostalgia. Ignoring the the fact that the entire entertainment industry is currently built on that idea. And it's nothing new either. Disney has been using nostalgia to market its properties for at least 50 years, and they seem pretty healthy. Super Mario Run is kind of a mess, mind you. Its biggest problem is even mentioned in this article. And that's how it asks you to pay $10, a huge price for a phone game, and doesn't even give you full access. The game only works if you're connected to the internet, which I brought up in my review. If you want to play on an airplane or during a subway commute, or just someplace with spotty Wi-Fi, too bad. And denying consumers full access to software they paid money for is not a good look. But the idea that this is somehow going to sink Nintendo, a company that owns several of the most valuable Pop culture franchises in the entire world is absurd, especially with their the latest console, the Switch, generating a huge amount of positive interest. By the way, Pat here, by the way, uh, I don't know, three huge universal theme parks coming in California, in Orlando, and in fucking uh, Japan in time for the Olympics there in 2020? Are you nuts? Nintendo's on top of the world right now. They are not struggling for survival. What an insulting, just brain-dead article, if I may say. Not to take it too personally, but this writer had an agenda. A big agenda. And ignored the facts or twisted them to suit what he wanted to try to accomplish here. But no one is fooled by this. This is cool. Friday the 13th gameplay from IGN. They did a mission. They did the first mission here. Um, Or first mission, they played a playthrough of one. I guess, one round. So, what is this game again? We, we, we talked about the Kickstarter about a year and a half ago. Uh, or a little over a year ago. This is an asymmetrical multiplayer game. What that means is that not all players are on the same side or doing the same task. In this case, it takes place in 1984. Uh, around, you know, the sort of the height of the franchise. Around That's around Friday 13th part, what, 3 or so. Um, so... One person, one human player plays as Jason. There are seven counselors. The counselors all have different abilities and powers. Some fight better, some have more stamina, some run faster, some have more technical uh, prowess in terms of uh, accomplishing some tasks there. The goal of the game is to simply survive. Survive, survive the night or escape. So 
how do you escape in the game? Well, there's a few different things you can do. I'm trying to try to bring up the little uh, objective screen about what that is. Uh, there's two different cars, I believe. There's a four-passenger car and two-passenger car that's available that you can try to repair. Um, there's a boat, or you can call the police and try to go to where the police are after they arrive and escape through there. The, the, the issue, though, or what, what, the, what the crux of this game, though, is that you have to work together with the other seven uh, teenagers, counselors. I think they're counselors, but I'm not positive. Eh, they're not counselors. They're just out for a vacation. Vacationers. We'll just call them teens. Here we go. So, for example, so to escape with the authorities, uh, you have to repair the phone box if you find it. Call the police. You have to find the phone. Uh, and then see where the police arrive, which I think is random, and then escape with the cops. And then do all that with, without Jason killing you. Um, escaping in the cars... You have to find the battery, bring the battery to the car and put it in. You have to find the gas, bring it to the car and put it the gas in. Find the keys, turn the car on, and then get people in the car to escape and drive the car out from the area of Crystal Lake. You can find uh, Tommy Jarvis, who was uh, the main protagonist in the, I guess, the Jarvis trilogy of uh, Friday the 13th 4, final chapter, which to me is the best one, uh, 5 and then 6, when Jason gets turned by Tommy Jarvis into the unkillable zombie. Up to four, he was a regular guy, and he actually dies in four. Four, to me, is a classic slasher sort of Jason movie. It's the epitome of the franchise, and hell, if they ended it there, which they originally were going to, I would have been satisfied with that. And then Tommy can show up and sort of help you out and wreak havoc. So, Jason is just about unkillable in this game. So, you can hit him to distract him and sort of stun him, but one-on-one, he can take you out. Now, Jason can kill you either by just hacking away with you with weapons, or he can do like the sort of the fatality kills, which were featured in a past video. Uh, by the way, this game was pushed back. It was originally supposed to be out by now, but uh, they pushed it back. But they are adding a single-player campaign, which originally did not meet the Kickstarter goal. So good on developers for doing doing that. So um, you can hide in the game. Um, it's about Again, it's about stealth. It's about hiding more than, than attacking Jason. Really, attacking Jason is like a last resort. Uh, and unless you're in a group, which I'll get into why that's important to be in a group, um, you you don't stand a chance one-on-one. There are traps you can set. I, I saw in this video, in this gameplay video, there was a, a bear trap that sort of stunned Jason. But if Jason, uh, he can come into the room, um, you, you best escape, like jumping out the window or fleeing. But based on your character, some characters are more agile than others. I saw one guy not be able to jump out the same window someone else did, so they probably weren't as agile. I think there's like a technician sort of person in the game that can repair the you know the box, but other players uh, can't do stuff. So you really have to communicate. But what's cool about this game is that they're using like 1984 technology and building that around the modern technology of speaking through the game. So it's not like a traditional game, like a first-person shooter, like Call of Duty, if you're playing that, hey, you know, you can talk on team chat and everyone can hear you. In this game, they're building it in so that... Um, your friends, the other teenagers, could only hear you if they were in close proximity to you. And by that account, if Jason is close by, he will hear that in his head as well. I guess the player uh, speakers or headphones will be able to hear the players if they're close by, but only if they're close by. So that means that you want to stick close to uh, at least one other person to coordinate, but you by but you also won't know what the other five players are doing or if they're even being killed. You'll have no idea what's happening. That's a cool horror element to the game. 
that keeps it semi-realistic. Now, there are walkie-talkies, though, that multiple players can find, and then by that token, uh, if you have the walkie-talkies, that other player will hear you, no matter where they are on the map, but then also the local ones will hear you as well, and then Jason will hear you if they're close by. I love that aspect. That that makes That's such a, a, a smart decision. To me, it's a common-sense one, but that's something that the developers could have missed out on, that let's bring the technology back to when the game takes place in 84. We don't have cell phones. We're not going to be texting each other. Uh, OMG, Jason is in the boathouse. No. We have a flashlight, which we should get into too, and we have our wits about us, and that's it. Now, the flashlight you can turn off, and people were commenting on this gameplay video, why is he turning the flash, flashlight off? Well, there's a fear factor that each uh, player must deal with. If your fear level gets too high, uh, it can affect your heads-up display, uh, it, 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 which can dis- disorient you, and it can affect your gameplay. So it's the sort of uh, uh, you have to you have to measure the pros and cons of keeping your flashlight on. The risk reward portion of uh, having the flashlight on, which which you, helps you to can see, but then Jason can see where you are, or turning it off and then your your you know your fear level can go up. And according to what I was uh, reading. If your fear level reaches a certain point, Jason can easily track you. It's like it becomes like a an attract. Uh, I don't. Know, I guess he has like a fear radar. He can zone in on you easier. I'm guessing on the map you'll show up. That's a smart element too. Jason can teleport in this game, which is an interesting choice, and I I kind of like it overall because you know after all there's seven people to go after. If he's got to run around and just chase one, you're never gonna find them all. Um, I'm guessing they're going to limit the, like, the recharge for the teleport. So what happens when there's a teleportation is it's a cool effect. It's actually really fucking scary. Is that when you teleport, um, when Jason teleports, it, it's like a VHS effect on the screen. It's like, like you see like the screen change and get staticky. And also the music pumps up. The creepy Jason music pumps up when Jason's close too, which is fucking creepy. And I love it. It gives you so- somewhat of a warning as well. Um, so... From the gameplay, like when, there's, when Jason's attacking two players, he grabs one, and there's a button to, to get away. But yes, if there's another player around, you can smack Jason. That helps out a lot. So again, it it you really it really pays to work in it looks like at least pairs. But hey, if you want to be an asshole and work by yourself and not work with a group and just survive on your own, you know you can play however you want. As well, um, in the game there are weapons that broke. Uh, looks like the bat broke. There was an axe. Where someone had. I think Tommy had. Uh, Jarvis had a sh- had a shotgun when he showed up. But yeah, you don't want to stay and fight with Jason. You want to run. You want to run, run, run far away. And I think there's different Jason models in the game too. You can use. So like the one in this video is like the, the zombie unkillable Jason. Um, but then there's also like the one I think available from like Friday Thirteenth Part uh, Two, Sackhead Jason. You know so. That's a cool idea as well, because then that gives the option of the person playing Jason a chance to do that. But I think I prefer rather playing as a counselor and trying to stay away. I think it'd be more interesting the teamwork, but, you know, it is fun. Ooh, he's taking an axe to Jason there to help out. And it's that Tommy Jarvis with a shotgun right there. So in this video, it was interesting. Uh, the escape plan was to find the, the four-passenger car. They all rush to the car at the end. One person has the gas. One person uh, has the battery. Um, and then uh, they had to, one person drops it, so they put it in while the other one fights off Jason. But when one person gets killed, while well, two or three escape and drive the car out, and then Jason teleports in front of the car as we're driving out, which I think is funny. And you can crash the car when you're, when you're going out as well. So 
What I like about this game is that while it is possible to kill Jason, it's not impossible. It's not imp- an impossibility. Uh, from what I read, the developers trying to kill the Jason character, trying to kill a person controlling Jason, seven, succeeded once out of like 70 times. It took 70 attempts to finally kill Jason. Now, I'm not sure if that entails setting multiple traps, on maybe trying to hang him like they do in Friday the 13th Part 3, or electrocute him, I don't know. But that, to me, that's what I want to see. I don't want a game where where it's a horror game, but then all these seven people can just gang up on Jason and kill him in the first two minutes. That's not fun, then. That's not fun at all. So again, it took 70 attempts for the developers, who are experts at the game, and know the game inside and out, to kill Jason. I love that aspect. Love it a lot. I think the maps are randomized in terms of locations. Uh, at the very least, if items have not, if like uh, where all the cabs and everything are, that's great replayability. Um, I'm interested in seeing what the single player mode is going to be like, the campaign. Probably an extra. I think I think the real bread and butter of this game is going to be the multiplayer. Absolutely think that's that's what it is uh, there. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to this. I remember tweeting back and forth a little bit with the developers during the Kickstarter, asking, I was trying to make like an NES type of joke uh, when it comes to it. So, um, we'll see what happens when it comes out in 2017. Um, let me know in the comments, would you prefer to play as Jason, popping people's eyeballs out, or the teenage uh, counselors trying to get frisky and go skinny dipping in the lake? That should be an option too, skinny dipping. Let's talk Spider-Man Homecoming trailer, huh? Uh, Tom Holland returns. He premiered the character. And the very good, not excellent, I think, but very, 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 very good Spider-Man Civil War, which came out in May. Spider-Man Civil War. Captain America Civil War. So, some some things from to, to get from this video, from this trailer. It's, it's the first, it's, I guess it's a teaser trailer, but it's more of a two-minute full trailer, not exactly a teaser. Uh, Spider-Man has the same sort of cocky attitude he had in Captain America Civil War. Sarcastic, which is great, because that's perfect. Tom Holland has nailed the Spider-Man aspect more than Tobey Maguire, and that's the writing, too, indirectly. It's not just the actor, obviously. But, um, Tom Holland has nailed that aspect of the character. Uh, and, you know, Peter's pretty good, too, from what I've seen. He's not wearing the glasses, though. He's not wearing the glasses, so I don't like that choice. But um, so far, I'm liking this. So far, I'm liking this a, a lot. He's got an Asian friend that finds out who Spider-Man is, that, that Peter Spider-Man in the trailer. I don't like that at all. I don't like that at, at all. Boy, does that bother me. Part of uh, Peter's essence to me is that he has to keep it a secret from the world. The people that he's friends with, like in the comics, Harry Osborn was his only friend in high school, really. Uh, Flash Thompson, the bully, hell, hated Peter's guts but loved Spider-Man. That was part of the character. Gwen Stacy didn't like Spider-Man. His girlfriend uh, didn't like Spider-Man, but Peter couldn't tell her. So, and she died without her ever knowing, which is one of the biggest tragedies and one of the best stories ever in comics. So, I am kind of bothered by that. Like, they gotta give him the the funny sidekick, uh, you know, friend. You know, goofy, goofy chubby sidekick I mean I don't know that's like almost cliche to me but uh what well, there's a lot of good in this trailer 
the suit looks fantastic. There's there's one part that has the the winged uh, under the armpits, like the winged web part, the webbed uh, armpits, like the, the original Steve Ditko outfit. Outfit. Liz Allen finally makes it into a Spider-Man movie. Now, Liz Allen in the original comic books uh, was the cute, popular blonde uh, that Spider-Man, excuse me, that Peter fawned over. Because remember, originally in the comics, uh, there was no Gwen Stacy. She didn't show up until a long while later. She didn't show up until, like, college. Um, and then uh, Mary Jane Watson, uh, MJ, uh, didn't show up until like some like issue thirty four or so, and she was like Aunt May's friend's like niece. Wasn't the next door neighbor like in that they made that weird decision like in the Sam Raimi movies? Wasn't wasn't uh, a contemporary in Peter's high school? Wasn't in a high school you know student? So, but Liz Allen in the comics she she hasn't been in a movie yet, but Liz Allen, um, Peter liked her. But she never liked Peter. Then, then from what I read in Wikipedia, and I own that comic, when Peter graduates, which is like issue 28, uh, when he fights the Multiman, that's the first comic book I ever read. I read a reprint of that. He graduates from high school in issue 28. And when that happens, she says, oh, Peter, I like you. Because by that point, Peter was showing more confidence. Because, hey, I'm Spider-Man. I'm, i got some strength now. I've got some confidence. Blah, blah, blah. And then Peter is not into her at that point. So it's good to see Liz show up. And changing the ethnicities doesn't bother me at all. I think they changed it changed it in the comic, and honestly, they're in Queens, multi ethnic area. It's not all just uh, uh, Caucasians and Queens, so that's not a change that bothers me. Um, so Peter's here and showing off his personality somewhat. Again, no glasses, which kind kind of bothers me a little bit. I'm not going to lie uh, about that. Um, he's watching like his fight against Ant Man, I guess, on YouTube on his computer. And, you know, it's, he's trying to get by. And, you know, i got to balance uh, high school with being Spider-Man. That's cool. We, we've seen it a teeny bit, but not that much. They sort of fast-forwarded him, unfortunately, in the uh, earlier movies through high school. But that was an important part of Spider-Man. Again, it was two and a half years of the comics before he even got out of high school. And Tom Holland looks like a freaking high schooler. He looks like a junior in high school. Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield were like 27 when the first Spider-Man movies were released, and for Spider-Man One and Amazing Spider-Man, they were—they did not look like high schoolers. They looked like old men, or well, old men in terms of compared to a high schooler. So this is going to be good because we're going to see at least two movies where you can buy, maybe three movies where you can buy Spider-Man as a high schooler. That's fantastic. This kid can be 23 doing Spider-Man Three or 22, and he'll still look like a high schooler to me. Very young face, young baby face. I love it. The elephant in the room, though, is, is the amount of Tony Stark in this trailer, Iron Man. It does bother me on the surface, being a huge Spider-Man fan, that a B-lister like Iron Man is being put into this trailer and this movie so much in order to float a Spider-Man movie. That bothers me. But again, that's not... I don't fault Marvel and Sony for that because they fucked up so badly with the Amazing Spider-Man movie, especially the sequel, that they, they cannot let the A hero, the biggest Marvel superhero fail in his first uh, you know, Marvel Studios well, slash Sony, <laughs> wink wink, a level Marvel Studios uh, movie he's got to be a success and throwing in uh, the biggest actor in the Marvel uh, in the MCU, the guy that the weight of the entire uh, movie continuity was built with Iron Man 
putting him into your movie isn't a bad idea. I just don't like the fact that he's mentoring Peter to such a degree and playing that father figure. That bothers me just a little bit. And yes, Iron Man, before he complained that and say he's not really a B-lister. Oh, he was a B-lister for quite a while until these movies. When people said, oh, there's an Iron Man movie coming out? Really? That's the first Marvel Studios film? People were like, kind of like scratching their head. But to his credit, credit uh, Robert... Uh, uh, Robert Downey Jr. has done, done an awesome job with it. He's been doing the, the role now for eight years. Um, and like, what is that? Like like six movies. So he's done a really good job with that. I just don't like the amount they showed in here. But then again, hopefully he only has two or three little scenes in the movie and isn't fighting alongside Spider-Man. But then again, you, sh- you, you see Iron Man suiting up and flying with Spider-Man at the end. That That bothers me. Sorry, it does. Sorry, that bothers me a lot. I want Spider-Man to stand on his own. He's one of the biggest superheroes that's ever existed. And definitely Marvel's biggest guy. He was the A-lister for, you know, the well, he's still the only A-lister that's, that's existed for the past 50 years. If you want to say Hulk, Sp- uh, Spider-Man, used to be Fantastic Four were the A-listers, and Captain America. Those were the big A-listers. And then Wolverine came along in the late 70s, early 80s as the next big A-lister. But Marvel is exi- is trying to pretend that X-Men and Wolverine doesn't exist because they don't have the rights to, them to do the movies. <laughs> right now so I'm excited for this we're in sort of this golden age of superhero movies we've got uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 2 coming out next year Spider-Man a couple months later hell Wonder Woman looks looks good DC movie yeah, pal, you hate you hate everything about DC yeah I'll probably see Wonder Woman it looks alright and I, I like Tom Holland in this role a lot and by the way Michael Keaton as Vulture is a great great pick for a villain Remember, Vulture originally was Sam Raimi's uh, choice to be in Spider-Man 3. He was going to be sort of the team-up villain with Sandman. Uh, they forced Vulture out, and then they wanted to shoehorn Venom in. We saw how well that turned out. So then Raimi really wanted a Vulture for Spider-Man 4. It was supposed to be, uh, I think, John Malkovich. That fell apart. Uh, he, he left the project, and then they rebooted with Amazing Spider-Man, which, looking back, was a bad idea. They showed it Spider-Man 4 and ended it. But... Michael Keaton's going to be great in the Birdman uh, type role, kind of menacing, and so I, I'm really looking forward to Vulture. And then, of course, you have the Shocker showing up. Uh, some people were saying that, oh, he's going to be teaming up with the Vulture. I don't know about that. I think he'll just still be a minor B villain. B villain. I'm not sure Marvel's going to do the idea that I that I want, where it's like uh, just a, a minor villain that can never carry its own movie for the pre pre uh, credits, like James Bond sort of sequence, where he fights him for like five six minutes and then roll credits. We'll see what happens with that. You never know, right? Rogue One. Um, a Star Wars story instead of Star Wars Rogue One. Rogue One came out to critical and audience acclaim. And um, I loved it. It could probably be, if not my third favorite, either my second or third favorite Star Wars movie out of the eight ones that are out there, if you don't count the freaking Ewok TV ones, which I've actually never seen. As I tweeted, it was a mature, more mature, because there are, there are some mature Star Wars films. Empire Strikes Back was pretty mature. But this treated the actual war as a complex subject. It wasn't just, well, the rebels are do are the good guys and do all good things, and then the Empire are evil and do, do all evil things. Then again, you didn't see a lot of good stuff that Empire's done, but it was a little more nuanced than uh, black and white. There was some shades uh, shade of gray there, there. This was directed by Gareth Edwards. I think he did a great job sort of uh, bridging the gap and really making this almost part one of A New Hope. 
of episode four originally just a new hope uh because originally you know there was no episode four on the on on the scrolls is star wars you know so the force awakens uh comes out next last year and everyone complains that well it's just basically already done uh star wars episode four there are similarities yes they play it safe i think they had to play it safe uh because yeah they spent billions of dollars and they can't they couldn't have screw up so maybe they went a little bit too safe i'm not going to argue if they did that but i still thought it was a fun movie this however did not exactly play safe not at all, but it was still a good movie. It still made a ton of money, and still was a uh, was a great time. Which shows that there is some room between total popcorn and taking a risk. There's some room in there. Um, it's not all just a uh, you know one or ten. You can meet somewhere in the middle there. So, first off, what I liked about this movie is that the the Jin Erso character was a flawed character that I think went through a much better journey. Than the character of Rey from The Force Awakens. Now you can say Rey was, oh, she was overpowered. Some say she was a Mary Sue, whatever the hell that means. But Rey really, during the film, was just discovering that she had Jedi powers. I mean, really. Yeah, she didn't know where she came from, but, you know, she was kind of like Luke. She was the female Luke, really, in that movie, except they accelerated the, the Force powers more between. Uh, you know, two moves to one. Then again, uh, Luke used the Force at the end of. Okay, it, okay, it was Episode Four, Force Awakens. All right, it was. You're right about that. But Jin has sort of a uh, troubled past, and really has to think about what's going on and what she wants to dedicate her her life to in terms of helping the rebellion out more than Ray did. I think Ray was more of a, well, you know, let's just do this. Well, I think Jin was more actually struggling with it. At least that's how it came across to me. So Felicity Jones did a good job, as did Diego Luna as Cassian uh, Andor, who's sort of the uh, rebel recruiter. And what I liked about his character, more of the sort of uh, do-what-it-takes character, kind of in the vein of the original Han Solo before they had, you know, Greedo shoot at him, was there's a scene, and this, by the way, this is a spoiler. Spoilers, 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 you can't complain now, spoilers. Is that... um. The character of Cassian, in the first like 15 minutes of the movie, shoots a rebel informant in, in cold blood to help escape. A guy that was given information, he ends up shooting and then escapes. Ballsy. Because that can turn off a crowd saying, Whoa, you know, I want my good guys to be good. Like like Lucas said, uh, I want my John Wayne character to be, to be like an archetype. No. This is there's some down and dirty work in a rebellion. The Sons of Liberty, if you're going back to American history, the Sons of Liberty did some dastardly shit in in the rebellion against the British Empire, but they were on our side, the U.S. side. If you're listening in the U.S. of A. in America, so the same thing. Freedom fighters do some bad shit to survive and to get the job done, and actually, that works into the plot where. Uh, Cassian is told by one of the rebellion higher-ups against orders of Mothma, who's uh, the leader of the rebellion and a senator at the time, to kill off uh, Jin's father, uh, Galen Erso, played by Mads Mikkelsen, who's now showing up in every fucking thing. It's great, because he's a good actor. So he's originally going to kill him, which creates uh, some a moral dilemma. Should he do it? Because the character of Galen Erso... Um, 
is the prime engineer of the Death Star, and that's that works into the plot where uh, his wife, uh, Jin's mother, gets killed off at the beginning of the movie. It takes place in the past. She runs away as a child, Jin, and then uh, to protect her, Galen comes back and continues to work on the Death Star because uh, he figures, well, I guess someone else can do it, so I might as well do it and protect my daughter at the same time, and I'll br- and I'll I'll uh, I'll work in a little. Uh, Sort of a loophole into how it's destroyed, which actually worked out well. So, again, there's shades of gray in this movie. So Cassian can't bring it upon himself to kill uh, Galen, Jin, Jin's uh, father, when they go from Jadu. They go to Jadu first, where, they, they, where you come across two guys that, that uh, were originally looking after the original Jedi Temple, but it's been gutted. It's been gutted of the, what is it, kyber crystals, which they use in lightsabers, which it turns out they're also using in the Death Star to power it. So that's been gutted. Donnie Yen plays uh, Chirrut, and you have Wen Jiang playing Baze. So Chirrut and Baze, Chirrut's uh, a blind martial artist. He's Force-sensitive. Donnie Yen's awesome. He's probably closer to 50 than 40, but he has has some impressive fight scenes. And he's 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 a believer in the Force, and then Baze... Is a, like sort of like a badass mercenary that has like a machine, a laser rifle that doesn't really believe in the force, thinks it's hokey, right? But they're best of friends. They go back and forth. They help each other out. I wish their their characters could have been fleshed out more. Which is one of the complaints I have about this movie is that it really is a heavily plot driven movie versus character based. But there are character arcs that do happen though. Uh, the other char- main character out of the five or six, if you want to call it that, K two Esso, which is an Imperial droid. Uh, that's been re- refashioned to help the rebellion played by or voiced and vo- uh, motion captured by Alan Tudyk, who's the primarily 95% of the uh, comedy relief. And this movie does need comedy relief. It is a dark, gritty movie overall, but you do have to have comedy even in movies like that. Uh, the the main villain is Commander uh, Krennic, played by Ben Mendelsohn. And then Forrest Whitaker shows up as the sort of insane guerrilla fighting extreme rebellion uh, leader Saw Guerrero. And then you have Bodhi Rook as uh, he uh, Riz Ahmed as R- Bodhi Rook who's the Imperial pilot who defects, who's the first one who gets the information out about Galen Erso that starts basically the chain of events. So that's your players here. So you go from plot point to plot point. They go from Jadu to find out where Galen is. Then they go to the planet where Galen is, where uh, Cassian is going to snipe and take out uh, snipe and take out Jin's father. Jin has no idea this is going on. Uh, but then uh, the villain Krennic shows up and threatens to kill everyone if he, if he doesn't find out who leaked the information uh, about the Death Star even existing. But then, this is where I like the movie. This is where the bold choices start happening. Is that the Rebellion does a, a bombing run with X-Wings. They end up killing Jin's father, Galen, the prime engineer of the Death Star. Wasn't by, by a villain, which is what you predict was going to happen. Wars, war is dirty. Bad shit happens in war. And sometimes harsh decisions, decisions have to be made. And by the rebellion standpoint, that was probably a smart move. Take out that facility, take out those engineers working on it, and even the main one. Why not? And they called it a bombing run, and that's what happened. Very smart move. From that point, it goes to the outstanding... I'd say final 40, 45 minutes or so. The huge set piece on the planet where the Imperial documents are being stored. Um, and that entails uh, a vicious ground battle between about about 20 rebels at first, including the five main characters. 
and then a um, awesome dogfighting space battle. Arguably the best one in the entire series. I probably liked it a little bit more even than Return of the Jedi because the objectives were clear with that space battle. It was choreographed well. You know what was going on. You know that they were trying to get down. Uh, they were trying to get down the uh, the shield genera- genera- generator that covered the entire planet physically and and also prevented the um, signal from getting out at the same time. So they had a clear objective, and then people on the ground had an objective to get the uplink to find the data cartridges, but also then get the uplink to the satellite and deliver the, the data cartridges of the Death Star plans to that uplink and then transmit it out once the shield was down. So there was lots of things going on at the same time, but it was easy to follow. And the direction was such that you knew where the Rebels were all the time and what was happening, and geographically what was happening. Very important. I always talk about, talk about that in movies, that you have to have the geography not only right in action scenes, but make sure the audience follows what's going on. So, some pleasant surprises in this movie. Archival footage of Red Leader and Gold Leader. So, and these guys showed up in Episode 4, New Hope. So, the Red Leader was the guy who controlled uh, the X-Wings and Luke, and was the commander who ends up getting killed, and Gold Leader for the Y-Wings, which are the bombers, and he ends up getting killed as well, I, I believe. Yes, he gets killed. So, pleasantly surprised to see that. It wasn't like, you know, CG. They had a lot of extra uh, footage left over. Because they had these guys record a lot of lines. So that was great. I was like, I got, got excited to see that because they did, they did such a good job linking this movie to episode four. Not just with stuff like that, but by, with, by how the looks of everything was. The rebels with the goggles and how the outfits were. Just spot on as close as they could get with episode four. So really good job there. Um, The other surprise, I'll give it away right now. Spoilers. Peter Cushing, CG Peter Cushing as Tarkin. They did a good job. I mean, I could tell it was CG, but hell, this wasn't as bad as like CG from uh, Tron Legacy. I'm not, 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 I know that's not saying much, but they did a good job. Uh, my girl didn't know that that wasn't a real actor when she was watching. Afterwards, I was like, you realize that was a CG character, right? She's like, oh my God. She, didn't, she had no idea. Maybe she's not in tune to knowing that, but... Um, that's as good as they could do. The voice was spot on. I don't know if people were going to complain, whoa, it looks so fake. I mean, they did the best they could. They got a guy to do, even do a do a stand-in that kind of looked like him and then model around his face. I mean, I don't, I don't mind that that much because we're at the point where it's good enough and you have to do that to bridge it to the, you know, to put the movies together because this is episode, this is really episode like 3.9999. This takes place a few days or a week before episode four. So, in order to bridge it, you have to have Tarkin there. You have to have him. And when I say this is a bridge, it really is the bridge. The last scene of the movie, which is a surprise, is literally leading up to Princess Leia getting the Death Star plans, the cassette in her hands. So, basically, the Rebels, they open up the the shield uh, covering the planet. They transmit the plans up. Uh, those plans are then put on a data cartridge and then passed to, what is it, the Tantive Four? That's the Corellian Corvette you see at the beginning of Episode Four. But along the way, Vader realizes what's going on and is brought into either, the, either I guess, the, the ship that's connected to the Tantive Four. Um, I guess there's like a couple chained together. And he fucking wrecks house with his lightsaber, deflecting shots of at least, uh, I guess, overall a dozen 
uh, rebel soldiers, uses the force to choke him, to throw him. It is probably the scariest moment of any Star Wars movie. The cinematography is great, the lighting, the, the music. You see the full power of Vader on display for like a good minute, more so than you've seen it even in Episode 3 when you have Anakin uh, going nuts. Uh, as Vader before though before he gets put into the the big android or cyborg suit, scarier moment, scarier than him uh, facing children he's about to kill off screen. I mean, this is fucking. You have you have the rebel sol- rebel soldiers fearing for their lives and rightfully so because they're about to be killed, trying to pass the pass the uh, the data tape to other soldiers in the next sort of cut off like almost like hallway where the doors almost closed, and they're not even not even want to take it. They want to escape too. So they're giving their lives, literally, to get these plans to uh, the Tanta Four, which is, uh, again, what's attacked at the beginning of Star Wars. Which, again, leads off to the, to the very beginning of the next movie, uh, Episode Four. Great job with that scene with Vader. Scary as hell. I want to watch that scene. Just I want to go back and see the movie again just for that scene. So, again, they did a great job bridging it uh, with Tarkin. Uh, the scene... This adds so much more to the scene in episode four where Tarkin walks in saying, he walks in saying, uh, the Senate's uh, been abolished. Uh, governors have, have now have direct control over their planetary systems. Because after all the bullshit you see in in uh, Rogue One, I guess the Emperor gets fed up with all the bullshit and says, okay, that's enough. We don't need the Senate anymore. Because Mon Mothma, who was members member, was in Return of the Jedi. They got, they got a younger actress that kind of looks like her to play her. You know, uh, 30 years later, 34 years later, she's a senator still in Rogue One, but then the Senate's immediately dissolved after this, uh, after these events. Like, Emperor's not playing around anymore. Um, absolutely not. And remember, even that opening crawl connects these stories. Uh, uh, rebels uh, striking from a hidden base have won their first battle against the Eagle Empire. That's what's on display in Rogue One the last 45 minutes. That's their first victory, and it's a big one. And then saying that during the battle, they got the plan. So what's important about Rogue One is that unlike the prequels, which to me mar the original movies, Rogue One makes the original Star Wars, I think, a richer experience. It adds to it, knowing what happened immediately before. It's almost like this is like episode 1A, or excuse me, episode 4A, and then episode uh, 4 New Hope is, you know, right afterwards. It's almost like you should watch them back to back. Almost. Not entirely. Obviously, there's different different technology, different writing, different direction. But they did a good job uh, not ruining that. Not like saying, oh, Darth Vader built C-3PO and that bullshit. But actually enhancing the story that was already there and not detracting from it. And I'll get to one other point about this before I move on. I want to talk about the reshoots. And it's obvious that there were reshoots after watching this movie. Obvious. You go back and watch, there's three tra- uh, trailers. There's original teaser and two trailers. That original teaser uh, has so many shots in it and lines that did not end up in this movie I just saw. From like, it's a, this is rebellion, I rebel. From little quips like that, that were taken out thankfully because that was bad attempts at comedy, to even the final shot where she turns around in the hallway well, and like, what will you become? I didn't talk about Siri. I didn't, I didn't say that. Like, what will you become when they find you? Well, you, you know, that wasn't in the movie. But there were action shots not in the movie that really give you, not even hints, tell you almost straight out what was what was changed. So, 
what was changed, it looks like, what was reshot was a lot of stuff in the third act. When they're on that, uh, um, I guess, tropical planet fighting to get the Death Star plans. In the original teaser, there's about three or four shots that give it away. In the original teaser, there's a shot of Jin already having the plans, along with Cassian, as well as the droid K2SO, running with the plans while there's troopers also running. Like, they got the plans, they're running out. That doesn't happen in the movie. Again, spoilers. In the movie, there's the whole battle to find the plans in the library, and then K2SO goes out like a champ, sacrificing himself, getting shot up by stormtroopers to save them, to buy them time. So obviously that was changed. Um, there's a shot of all the heroes running, uh, Jin, Cassian, uh, Chirrut, and played by Donnie Yen, and then Bays are running across, uh, seemingly after they have the plans, running across, trying to desperately get to the uplink station, which is changed from in the movie, being connected to where the Imperial archives are, to being separate, that they have to run to. So they simplified the ending. So now they're running in, the, in this teaser, they're running across and trying to dodge at at fire. That is not in that movie. They definitely changed that. Definitely changed that. Um, the shot of Ben Mendelsohn's character, uh, Krennic, uh, seeing the battlefield with like dead troopers and flames, and his cloak sort of ominously going over the water, probably approaching the heroes as they try to go to that separate uplink station. That's gone from the trailer. Gone entirely. So what happened here? I think what probably happened was this. I think this movie was probably slightly grittier than what we saw. Slightly darker. I think what happened is, I want to surmise that the Death Star still blew up um, the base area and everyone still perished. I'm probably thinking that still happened. There was a sacrifice, which again, why I like this movie, that showed that war requires sacrifice and there is a real cost to it. Um, and you, you, and you, no one gets away scot-free. Everyone dies. That's an important lesson, and I think it's a ballsy lesson for a Disneyfied, if you want to call it, Star Wars movie. It happens. I think everyone still dies, but how they died, I think, changed. I think in the original version, I would, I would love to read the script one day, is that either some of them get mowed down by the Adat fire, or they all survive, only to all be incinerated and destroyed by the Death Star after the plans are obviously uploaded via the satellite uplink. I think Disney saw that and said, ooh, that's a little bit of a downer even for even for this gritty movie. Let's change that. Let's give the, the comic relief K2SO, the sarcastic droid that hates Jin so much throughout the movie, let's give him a heroic death. Let's have him go out like a boss. Let's have Donnie uh, Yen's character do something heroic before be, being killed. Let's have then some connection to uh, uh, Baze's character afterwards uh, be said that his friend died and go out like a fucking boss too, which he does mowing down troopers, saying the force is with me. I am one with the force. The force, you know, the for- I'm one with the force. The force is with you. Know, like, let's have these character moments, and let's have their deaths mean something. Besides it being a waste, like for example, the one death they probably didn't change was Bodhi Rooks, uh, because there's he's he he's in the uh, the Imperial shuttle. They complete the uh, uplink, and a random stormtrooper throws uh, in, in a thermal detonator, and he's, he gets killed. That's what war is. That's a pure World War II death. 
And there's lots of deaths in the movie like that where you see rebels just getting mowed down because that's 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 war. Not every death has meaning. A lot of them don't. But I think Disney wasn't okay with that with some of these characters, and that was definitely stuff that was that was reshot. K2SO again. Um, the other main characters. It's just it remains to be seen how the characters Jid and Cassian were meant to go out if they were still killed by, uh, you know, if they were killed by uh, Krennic or not. Who knows? Uh, I can picture maybe Krennic shooting Jin after she successfully uploads it, then Krennic looks up and sees the fucking Death Star kill him. So, that could have been a little bit too dark for Disney. So, if that was what happened, like these guys all didn't have uh, heroic deaths before, K2SO, uh, Chiru, Baze, and were given heroic deaths, do I have a problem with that? Not entirely. I think the the movie's still dark and gritty for a Disney Star Wars movie to still get away with that. The K2SO scene's really, really nice. The other scenes are nice as well with Donnie Yen and Wen Jiang. Uh, so I don't mind that. I don't mind that they may have went a little softer there. I don't I don't mind that entirely because it's still the darkest Star Wars movie. But, hell, if they do a director's cut one day, I'll be glad to see the difference. And eventually that, that information will get out there. It'll get out there, whether it's two years, five years, about what the, what the third actor originally was. Hell, the actors themselves know what happened. You know, unless they're under an NDA. At some point, at some point, we'll know through storyboards or a leaked script what originally was supposed to happen. But I still think this is a really good movie. I'm going to see it again. And it could be my second favorite uh, Star Wars movie at the end of the day. Is that it for this CU podcast? Is that it? What a fucking whirlwind CU podcast this was. Do I, did I come off too angry against guys like PewDiePie? I don't think I did. Oh, wait. I think there's one more topic. What? It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas everywhere you go. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. There's one more topic. How did I forget this? Oh, Ian, I wish you were here. Remember Mike Kennedy? Remember Mike Kennedy? I think you do. I think you do a lot. (laughs) Retro Magazine's back. In the form of a Patreon. So, Retro Magazine, which I wrote for in in the first year, three or four articles, uh, was not run professionally. The editors I worked with were not professional. Treated not just me, but important to others, everyone like dirt, even people that uh, had a stake in the magazine. People like Scott from uh, the Retro Game uh, Roundup podcast. Um... It struggled to get out all its issues from its first two Kickstarters. It did a second Kickstarter. I did not write for the second year, only the first year. I did not want to be involved after the unprofessionalism of the first year. And, of course, uh, you know, me being treated like shit, uh, not not getting uh, told when I sh- when articles were due until, like, two days before, uh, originally not being allowed to write what I was supposed to be writing, things like that, late payments, etc. So... This used to be a magazine in Barnes & Noble. I think it's lost its distribution. I think people have soured on this magazine for a few different reasons. Besides it being very late and being, you know, months and months and months and months behind getting issues out. Um, it went from being a retro, retro gaming magazine after I stopped writing for it to, like, kind of retro. Or, like, there was, like, theme months where, where they probably got sponsorship money from Midway to 
feature like uh, Mortal Kombat on the cover for Mortal Kombat X. Like really weird, dumb decisions were made. So I guess Mike Kennedy had extra money to, I don't know, redo his bathroom instead of keeping the integrity of, of a retro gaming magazine, which was what the intention was. So people dropped off. Bad customer service, I heard, etc. But the magazine was not getting out on time. They struggled to put out the magazine. So after you go through a struggle of putting out a magazine through Kickstarter, why the fuck would you go to a Patreon when Patreon is not a Kickstarter? Patreon is to support not products, but to support individual artists and creators, musicians, people that do YouTube videos, things of that nature. Not a magazine that failed on Kickstarter. Absolutely not. So if you go to the Patreon, read retro, uh, Patreon, for Retro Magazine. The goal is $9,500 per magazine. Right now, it's at $276. 49 people want to see it happen. You 49 people, way to go. Um, and that, and so what it says is, this is what our minimum costs are to produce and print a single issue of Retro with a print-slash-mail run of 2,000 issues. This will serve as our second goal. The quicker we can hit this goal, the quicker we can start shipping Retro on a regular bi-monthly basis. This $9,500 gets divided up among our content writers, editors, layout, and design team, illustrators, and a printer. We can we do sell advertising when we can, but at these low circulation numbers, it can't carry the magazine like advertising used to back in the good old days. For now, we can't count on it much. Yeah, I don't think uh, a readership of 50 or even 150, uh, yeah, advertising ain't worth much. But you know what it is worth much? You know what gets 30,000 downloads an episode? The CU Podcast. If you want to advertise with the CU Podcast, email podcast at thepunkeffect.com. <laughs> reach 30,000 people at least and more on YouTube. Anyway, so this is strange because this is not what Patreon's built for. It's absolutely not. This is just misguided. Try to do another Kickstarter if you really think so. And if you fail, you fail. So what's interesting though is that it's at $276 per magazine, not per month. So you can run a, you can run a Patreon either per month or whenever the person running it says this is what I think it is qualifies as a magazine. So my hope is that uh, Mr. Kennedy isn't just going to charge people when he when he sees fit. So what if he reaches, he won't. What if he reaches $5,000 per magazine and decides, well, I didn't reach, reach halfway, but I'll put out a digital zine then for my backers. I'll charge him the five grand to do that for that one issue for that month. Or I'll, I'll, I'll uh, cut corners then and, and uh, I don't know, print these on an inkjet fucking Canon printer and staple the pages together and mail it out in a manila envelope. Nothing to stop you from doing that. There's no, there's no money back on Patreon. It's not like a, you know, it is what it is a Patreon. You know, you're supporting the, the individual, not necessarily a product, which is why this does not belong on Patreon. Not at all. Not at all. It doesn't belong here. So, uh, I'm going to check out my favorite website, Atari agent. Merry Christmas to all of you. And what they have to say about this this uh, venture. I'm sure it's nothing but positive on Atari Age. I'm sure it's not. Okay, let's scroll down. Uh, so someone named MacDude22 said, Long time lurker, first time poster. Uh, I'm just an old Coleco fan along for the ride. Just got a notification from Patreon that I might, that I might be interested in. Ellipsis, ellipsis. First response from Inky. You gotta be kidding me. Second response from Jaybird. Third, just when you think he's gone, and then a picture of the creature from the Black Lagoon returning. Sean says, 
I wonder why comments are disabled on that video. And I'll get to that video in a second. DJ Convoy says, can't believe there are 33 people as of this writing willing to fund the damn thing. Well, now it's 49, DJ. Jaybird Third says, that's why we still need this, need this thread. 33 is already too many. Piper Cut, who's Scott from uh, Richard Gaming Roundup, says, Patreon has been courting us for months, in quotes, which is a deep cut callback to Mike when he when he chose Indiegogo for the retro BGS versus Kickstarter, and people asked him why, and he said, well, Indiegogo was courting us, which who knows if that was real or not. Cyber Silence says, only thing to say about that, oh, for fuck's sake. I suppose we needed someone something to lurk out from the MK swap just to keep this thread going. Uh, so he could barely deliver on the original magazine with an issue to go, was of subpar quality, and 33 people are backing a new effort? DJ Convoy says, just got yet another email from Subscription Genius or whatever the hell it's called about this. I think this makes my sixth fucking time unsubscribing from them, maybe more. I've literally lost count. Leave me alone, Mike. Angry edit. Seventh. All in caps. Chuck D. Head says, let's face it, he will never just go away. We feel like we stepped in a pile of dog shit. We hosed it off our boots and off the we hosed it off our boots and off the front porch steps, but the smell, smell never fully goes away. We occasionally find a few shit stains that somehow got onto the carpet and are constantly reminded of that original pile of dog shit and perpetually worried that a new pile of dog shit will pop up in our path when we least expect it. Those of us foolhardy enough to originally think the pile of dog shit was tasty chocolate pudding. Continue to deal with the aftertaste. Jesus. God Lebrat says anyone with half a brain would have packed up their failing magazine, fulfilled their last obligations, and said thank you to their subscribers and closed up shop. Then there's Mike. Amstari says Kickstarter, Indigo, Go, Go, Indigo, Go, Patreon. Is there any other crowdfunding sites left that Mike hasn't used yet? Uh, then a little bit more. Uh, Cosmic Stardust says, got this in my inbox today. Last issue I'll ever receive and only one year behind schedule. Anyway, good riddance. Read Retro, you won't be hearing from me again, and I can only hope the same. Likewise. Woo! So this was the the letter sent out. Thank God I did not receive the email. Uh, I don't think I did. I haven't checked my email since the podcast started. Did I get the email? I don't think I got the email. Okay. So, the email to, I guess, current Read Retro people. Hello, Retro Reader. You are receiving this because you are a current subscriber to Retro Video Magazine, or your magazine subscription may subscriber may, may, subscription may expire with release of issue 12. We are, we are excited to finally be printing and shipping our latest issue of Retro Video Game Magazine number 12. Which is like a year behind, by the way. Uh, this is a very special issue that concludes our second set of issues with nothing but exclusive interviews with some of gaming's greatest pioneers. Uh, which, again, are, are farmed interviews from other publications that already existed and podcasts. We have queried game developers, programmers, company presidents, and executives. See how they got into the industry and learn about, well, okay, blah, 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 blah. You can now go and download your issue, blah, 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 blah. You can download, okay, blah, blah, blah. With this issue, it will conclude our first 12 issues of publishing. Again, like a year late. On behalf of the entire Retro team of editors and contributors, we want to thank you for your patience. We apologize for the many delays in order to fill this commitment. Publishing a magazine is very costly and has been a big learning curve for all involved. 
Both Kickstarters were underfunded as unforeseen costs and roadblocks appeared, and our last couple of issues had to be potentially funded to some extent to, com to complete, and that is what contributed to the various delays. Well, let's see! You wouldn't have used some of those funds for, let's say, I don't know, a failed video game console venture, maybe? Hmm. 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 But after this... We now know much more than we did when we started. So I'll just give you more of my money. You didn't know what you were doing before, but hey, now you do because you said so. We have lowered our production costs and are very excited to continue moving forward with Retro Video Game Magazine. Maybe you'll pay your writers even less. I don't know. Uh, moving forward, we're going to continue publishing Retro and utilize Patreon for our subscriptions. This method will help eliminate your risk in paying for an entire year of Retro and wondering when if the next issue will be published. It will allow you to sign up once, and we will charge your credit card for each individual issue only after it is complete and ready to print and mail. That is insane for a magazine. For those of you whose subscription ended with number 12, you can wait until after you receive this issue via mail uh, before renewing your subscription through the Patreon link. If you have more issues still remaining on your current subscription, then you will continue to receive your issues when they are available. And won't need to renew your subscription via Patreon until your current subscription runs its course. We will alert you when this happens so you won't miss an issue. So what if, Mike, these people that have paid for a full year, starting with, I don't know, issue number 10. I'm not sure why the fuck you would have done that, by the way. But maybe you ha have, and I shouldn't, I shouldn't get down on you. Because you, you think this would have been actually fulfilled. What happens to their money, Mike? You keep that? Because this Patreon is never going to get filled. You're never going to hit 9500 9, a month for that. Why not just refund their money, Mike, and then tell them to put the money back into the Patreon? You will continue to receive your issues when they are available and won't need to renew your subscription. you got to be fucking kidding me. That's insane. Refund their money, Mike. They're not getting their other issues. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen, Mike. Sh fucking shameless. And this is why I'm never going to let my fucking foot off the pedal when it comes to this horse shit. Fucking bullshit. We hope you will continue to subscribe to Retro Video Game Magazine on Patreon. Our team is committed to continue producing high quality content, content that celebrates this great pastime for years to come. Thanks again to all of you for helping to make print video game magazines a thing of the future and not a thing of the past. It's over, Mike. It's fucking over. It's over. The magazine is fucking done. Give them their money back, Mike. The dream is fucking done. Merry Christmas, everyone. Trying to take money again from people for an awful fucking retro business venture. Alright, on that note, that's the end of this CU podcast for uh, December 20th, Tuesday. I hope everyone has a very Merry Christmas out there. Happy Holidays. Remember, Christmas, if I say Merry Christmas so you don't celebrate, don't take it as an offense. Christmas is now non-denominational. It's really non-religious. It's just a time to to give gifts, give gifts to people. You, you eat lots of pie and cake and Italian pastries and any pasta. And holy shit, am I hungry? Um, and you have a good time. And you just try to relax for at least a couple days. You know, that's the Christmas season. It's all about. Yes, I know Macy's created this whole fucking giving gifts and Santa Claus thing like a hundred years ago, but. Don't be a cynic. It's actually a good time to relax. And, you know, give is, giving giving actually feels better than receiving stuff. I, I honestly believe that. Uh, but if you want to give to a real Patreon, 
<laughs> we have one. It's the Patreon for the CU podcast. You can watch the the uh, Patreon. Excuse me. You can watch the podcast in its in its video entirety. It's patreon.com slash pixel sickle. P X L S I C L E. My app is out at iOS dot uh, for the Apple version. Uh, and then it's at uh, droid dot uh, dot The Android version will be out uh, hopefully later this week at four ninety nine. The Ultimate NES uh, Library Guide book is in the second printing. You can pre order at ultimatenes.com as well. Um, Ian's going to be doing um, uh, an unwrapping of his gifts coming up hopefully in the near future at his own place. Didn't have time for this podcast. I'm exhausted. Had some technical issues I had to deal with. But thanks so much. We, we really appreciate you guys giving us uh, stuff in the mail. Uh, and we will get back to hopefully in the, in the future doing it more often. It is appreciated. It's, we don't take it for granted. If you want to give us stuff, it's... Uh, CU Podcast Care Pack Country P.O. Box 7695 San Diego, California 92167 Again, uh, I'll be at the SoCal Retro Gaming Expo February 4th and 5th SoCalRetroGamingExpo.com You can pre-order tickets using code NESPUNK to save on the tickets there. Ian will be there too, Frank uh, others as well So I will see you next time in 2017 Look out for that post traditional post-Christmas Christmas NES Punk episode as well. We'll see you later.